to overcome these challenges, to restore the soul and secure the future of America, requires so much more than words. It requires the most elusive of all things in a democracy, unity, unity. In another January, on New Year's Day in 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. When he put pen to paper, the president said, and I quote, if my name ever goes down into history, it'll be for this act, and my whole soul is in it. My whole soul is in it. Today, on this January day, my whole soul is in this, bringing America together, uniting our people, uniting our nation. And I ask every American to join me in this cause. All right, name is Ben Burgess, and this is Give Them an Argument. In a few minutes, I'm uh, gonna be doing a panel on Biden and the US empire with uh, Katie Halper, Daniel Bessner, and Rania Kalik. Uh, a little later on, uh, David Griscom is gonna be here for Outlaws and Revolutionaries, gonna do a segment on uh, the highwaymen. Uh, but, uh, but right now, I'm joined as always by our producer, uh, Forrest Miller. Uh, and uh, the voice that you just heard uh, was uh, President uh, Joe Biden uh, at his inauguration, uh, comparing as the overwhelming moral imperative of his, uh, his of his presidency uh, the pursuit of bipartisan unity to the abolition of slavery. That as important as ended slavery was to Lincoln. Uh, the uh, unity uh, is divided. Those are actual words that came out of his mouth. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can see the kind of civil war imagery, and I feel like a lot of liberals right now feel like we're almost on a verge of like a, a civil war. But you know, it's like their peace being disrupted. I guess is them, you know, being on the verge of a civil war. Yeah, uh, and yeah, actually, one of the uh, the less inspired bits of uh, wordplay in the inaugural address was uh, he used the phrase "uncivil war." Uh, so it's which uh, I think, yeah, I think Will Menneker pointed out almost sounds like the uh, uh, the Guns and Roses, uh, you know, civil war song. <laughs> What's so civil about war anyway? Um, but uh, but it, but it is still you know remarkable, and I think that it it tells you. Um, everything you know that, that you need to know about what this this incoming administration is going to be, because a lot of people, there's been a lot of loose talk about Biden as like a possible second FDR. Uh, you know, I mean, Bernie said that uh, he, uh, you know, he said you know Biden could be you know could be a new you know new FDR, the most progressive president you know since uh, since FDR, uh, and even though he's saying you know could be. So it's not as bad as it would be if he, you know, if he was saying will be. There has been a lot of that uh, going around, but I think if you pay attention to the inaugural address, if you uh, if you pay attention to his uh, his his first round of executive orders, it's pretty clear that his goal is actually to not be a second FDR. His goal is to be a second Barack Obama. Yeah. For sure. And I mean, you know, that's one of the problems with having a, a vice president kind of 
pushed into the slot of president now because um, they, they, they have a, like, you know, they, they have to push through the legacy that they helped build. You know what I mean? So there's no breaking away from the Obama legacy, even if he wanted to, which clearly he doesn't for that reason. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so he did a lot of, you know, he did a lot of good things in the uh, the day one executive orders and, and other day one actions. Uh, but almost all of those good things fell into one of two categories. So either they were like kind of emergency measures because of the current like crazy unprecedented crisis, you know, that we're, that we're going through, uh, like extending, you know, eviction, you know, moratorium because um, obviously, you know, the, the COVID crisis and the economic fallout of that is, has been insane and un, uh, unprecedented. Uh, but, or that was one category. And then the other category was just restoring the status quo from, um, you know, January 19th, uh, you know, 2017, uh, that, which was, which was most of, uh, of what he did. So, and again, this is all good stuff, more or less it's, um, you know, reversing, you know, the Muslim ban, um, you know, like reversing, a long series of, uh, of Trump policies. And some of these Trump policies really are very bad and it's good that they're reversed, but I think we do need to be real about what the agenda is. This is not that it's, it's some like massive move to the left by the democratic party establishment. It's just literally that he wants to turn back the clock to, yeah. uh, to where it was before Donald Trump became president. And the reason that that distinction I think is worth harping on and obviously, we're going to get into the the foreign policy dimension of this in a, in a few minutes. Uh, but the reason that it's it's worth harping on, you know, in like even in terms of domestic policy, is that what the status quo was before Donald Trump became president is the reason that Donald Trump became president. Yeah, definitely. Like it's. Um, if you look back at the uh, at the Obama administration, you know Obama wasn't um, you know doing some you know sweeping attempt to ban people to come over from you know from a bunch of Muslim countries. Uh, you know he he wasn't um, you know he wasn't you know appointing social conservatives to the Supreme Court. You know he wasn't trying to he wasn't doing things like appointing that guy that um, that Trump fired. Uh, sorry, that Biden fired. You know on his first day. Uh, who is the general counsel for the National Labor Relations Board, who was basically on a one-man crusade to stop the enforcement of labor law. And so all of these are, are ways in which the Obama period was better. But the Obama period was also a time when um, economic inequality was continuously increasing, uh, like every year uh, that, uh, that Barack Obama uh, was president. The Obama period was a time when um, the only response of the Obama administration, like, like we can even really specifically talk about electoral consequences because look at like West Virginia, you know, which was a, a very solidly democratic state, um, you know, which, which makes sense, you know, cause the historical role of the, uh, the miners unions uh, there. Uh, but, uh, but then it ended up going to Trump. And, you know, if you look at the Obama years in West Virginia, you know, the Obama years are our time with the only government experience like the only government response to the plight of uh, of unemployed miners was to uh, plant a few technology training centers 
which is basically an which is basically an elaborate way of saying you know screw you stop whining and learn to code yeah and uh and you know i mean they have Rahm Emanuel who literally was saying learn to code on a yeah, that's right he did <laughs> yeah <laughs> so you know it's past even like the joke and you know it, it becomes reality at that point yeah absolutely uh and again these are the these are the conditions uh that that led to uh enough people in crucial you know swing states being willing to roll the dice on Trump in the first place and more importantly these are the conditions that led to the Democratic turnout uh, being so much lower in 2016 than it was in 2012, which is the main reason uh, that, that Trump uh, that Trump won. Uh, and it's also, I think, if you look at the speech itself, obviously a lot of it was just babble. Like the part that we played earlier was like honestly one of the one of the parts where relatively coherent thoughts were expressed. Uh, that uh, like a lot of it was just like babble. It was it was like that. Yeah. If if uh, if people remember, uh, you know, we're not going to risk the copyright strike by playing it. But uh, if people remember, there was a uh, there's this classic episode of The Simpsons, is a uh, early Treehouse of Horror episode where uh, these aliens, Kang and Kodos, replace Bill Clinton and Bob Dole so that one or the other of them will win the 1996 election. And there's the speech that uh, Kang gives as bill clinton that's like um you know forwards not backwards upwards not forwards always twirling <laughs> twirling towards freedom and that literally is what uh most of the inaugural address reminded me of but i think there were two like real uh political themes there and if you pay attention to either one of them it's not good because one of them was uh, the Trump era as this like crazy aberration from the American norm. Like there was, there was a lot of that. Like he, there were tons of references to January 6th. Uh, you know, he, he talked a lot about peaceful transfer of power. Uh, and in fact, some of it was like a little weird. Cause like he, on the one hand, he was talking about Lincoln, but on the other hand, he said, we've had an uninterrupted tradition of peaceful transfer of power for 200 years. Yeah. It's like, well, I would think that several states starting an armed revolution because the guy that they didn't they they uh, they hated one would would count as a pretty significant exception to that. But you know whatever. Uh, and so so part of it was okay. Trump is this weird freakish aberration from American history uh, that that we're we're ending that now. We're going back to normal and and a, and, a, and a kind of you know an aberration from the Republican Party. Because when he's saying, you know, I'm I'm going to restore bipartisan unity, he's 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 basically saying that Trump isn't synonymous with the Republican Party, and that somehow their agenda post Trump is going to be different than you know the the incredibly obstructionist, incredibly devastating, um, abhorrent agenda that they've had for the last four years. No, totally. Uh, well, that's the thing, because that's the other theme, right? So the first theme was Trump is a weird aberration that's going to be that's going to be corrected now, and the second theme was what we got in that clip we played earlier, unity, right? That this, that unity is literally as important to him as freeing the slaves was to Lincoln. Uh, and which again, amazing. Uh, but, uh, but the two go together in exactly the way that you just said, because the whole point about, um, you know, the whole point about unity is that, you know, it, it's a, it's a poetic way of saying, you know, bipartisanship and Trump is a crazy aberration. Now we're going to have unity. 
is a way of saying, okay, the Republicans went a little crazy there for a few years, but now they're going to go back to normal. And we are going to go back to the way things were in the Obama years when bipartisanship was a article of faith that, you know, that uh, Obama spent uh, his, his whole first term more or less, uh, you know, questing for this grand bargain uh, with Republicans to, uh, you know, save, uh, you know, uh, social security, Medicare and the rest by slashing them. Yeah. The only reason that didn't happen was the Republicans were so obstructionist, they wouldn't even go for it. But then like during the 2012 election, uh, Obama infamously said, oh, don't worry about it when, you know, after I beat Mitt Romney, you know, the fever will break. You know, that was this phrase, the fever will break and Republicans will go back to their senses. And um, by, and Biden in 2019, he was saying the same thing on, uh, you know, on the campaign trail. He was, he was saying that uh, that the Republicans are going to, you know, come to their senses, you know, after, uh, after Trump. Uh, and in fact, uh, last month, uh, he was saying the same thing. Literally, when most major Republicans were refusing to recognize his election, uh, he was still uh, he was still saying that um, that oh my, you know my Republican friends are going to be very acting very differently after Trump is out. You know that's it's going to go back to normal, and of course that's weird and delusional just on its own terms. Yeah. I mean, especially, I mean, my God, right after everything like we've seen even just the last few weeks. But more importantly, if you look at that rhetoric, you really think that this guy is ready for some big, like, you know, progressive break from, you know, from the Democratic uh, consensus. You think that, you know, he's, I mean, forget the idea that he would have second thoughts about Medicare for all. You think he's going to actually fight for a public option uh, like like that the guy who spent like two thirds of his inaugural address talking about the importance of bipartisan unity is going to go to war with the Republican Party and for that matter with the Democratic Party's donor uh, class in order to achieve a public option, which is absolutely what it would take to achieve that. Of course, he's not going to. Yeah. And you can already see him backtracking off, you know, even the the two thousand dollars a month. Like now, it's you know fourteen hundred, and he wants to work for like work with the Republican Party, and he wants to make sure that they agree to the terms of of his uh, you know coronavirus stimulus package. Like you know, he, he's not even willing to ram that through the Senate using Bernie as his uh, you know u- using that that process. You know, like reconciliation. So it, it's like I don't know. Like he's he's going to be unwilling to do anything that he he isn't going to be able to meet you know, halfway with their oh, party. Totally. totally. And, I, and I think the reason that this matters just to put a little bow on it before we, uh, you know, talk about the Patreon and then bring on Katie. Uh, I think the reason that this, that this is worth harping on is because a lot of people on the left, a lot of people that I respect and like, um, I think are fooling themselves about, uh, about Biden uh, because they'll sure they'll acknowledge, oh, he's very bad. He's, uh, you know, obviously, you know, we hate his record, this and that. But they think that they're going to accomplish things by pressuring Biden. That like that's they've got this conception of the role of the left, where we are, um, uh, where we are in a kind of permanent coalition with Biden and the centrists. And of course, we're the most left-wing edge of that coalition. Uh, but our role is to act like loyal foot soldiers, just you know, more or less blame everything on the Republicans, but to kind of lobby from within the coalition 
uh, to, to get Biden to do more left-wing things. And I'm not saying that there's no truth to the idea that it could work with that. I think it could be locally true in certain areas, maybe, that, you know, that Biden could be pressured to do more progressive things than he might otherwise. But I think anything that would really go against the interests of capital uh, in any significant way, and I'm not talking about, like, you know, workers control the means of production here. I'm talking about, like, even a public option. Yeah. Right? You know, that, like, anything like that. Uh, you know, significant debt forget any of that stuff, right? Mm -hmm. That anything that would go significantly against the interests of capital, he's just not going to do it. And so, if you have that mindset, if that's your way of approaching Biden, that you're like doing this all this like Kremlinology to be like, ooh, but you know, he's saying something that's like three degrees to the left of what Obama would have said. That's a big victory for us. I think you're doing it wrong. Uh, like ultimately, you just have to buckle in for the facts. And I know that people don't like this because they want to, you know, there's always the quest for the quick fix. It's mm -hmm. going to get us the stuff that we want. But the only way we're going to get the stuff we want, even the social democratic basics, is to just win a fuck ton of elections against centrists. Yeah. And and so if that's your perspective, that the only way we're going to get the things that we want is if, it, you know, instead of having like a squad of like, you know, that you could count on your fingers and uh, pressure in Biden that you just have to beat these people to take power for yourself. Then you're going to be talking about Biden in a very different way. Cause you're going to want to try to drop contrast with him. Mm -hmm. You possibly can. Well, the, the coalition approach is, you know, it, it's an expression of powerlessness. It, yeah. you know what I mean, like people are unwilling to accept the fact that they're going to have to win these elections. They're going to have to win these victories They're, I mean, it is the quick fix, but you know, it's an expression of, well, we might not have won this election. We might not have won the primary. We might not, you know what I mean? But, you know, there's still there's still options for us. And this is the power structure the way it is. And, you know, you have to work with it. You know, the confrontational approach, it's it's like, well, we haven't won elections in these places. So, you know, we can't, you know what I mean? Like, we're only going to win by working with Biden. And, and I'm sure he's going to come to his senses. But Biden right now has the perfect excuse not to come to his, uh, to his senses, which is the pandemic. At the end of the pandemic, you know, whatever money they've spent, they're going to say, we don't have money for anything else. And, you know, you know, so having a, a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House right now doesn't really mean that much, you know, if you don't have progressives, because the progressive or the, the you know, the centrists that exist right now are just going to say, we just had a, a massive amount of spending. We had a massive amount of emergency measures. And, you know, we can't do anything else. I'm sorry. Like, it, it's not us. It's, you know, it, it's the budget. Like, we spent all this money already. We don't have extra money. And they have that perfect out. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that's I think that's totally right. And I think if you get excited about whatever little crumbs they throw you, uh, then you're going to miss that bigger picture, and you're certainly going to miss the chance to draw the kind of contrast that we need to draw. Uh, you know, to kind of build up towards that longer term strategy of just beating them, uh, so we can take power for ourselves and do that instead of somehow pressuring or tricking them into uh, into doing those things for us. Uh, but, uh, before, um, before we, uh, we bring on the panel, uh, which, uh, which we're about to do talk about Biden's foreign policy, uh, you have the, uh, the new comic from, uh, from J. Andrew world. Yeah. Yes. So it's the, uh, the bring out the gimp, uh, scene from Pulp Fiction guys, bring out the gimp gimps watching, but give them an argument with Ben Burgess. Well, I guess you're going to have to make him stop now. Uh, won't you? Every time he watches that show, he won't shut up about the great guest socialism or the Sopranos. 
The Gimp and I used to go out for milkshakes at Jackrabbit Slims. Now that he's subscribed to Ben Burgess on Patreon, we don't get to go out no more. It's a real shame we only have two ball gags. So <laughs> that's a pretty, uh, you know, if you have uh, Pulp Fiction memorized enough to find that funny, it's a, uh, it's a good, um, you know, it's a good promo uh, for, um, for the Patreon. Speaking of the Patreon, um, we, I should say, we're going to play a clip from this uh, later, a little preview. Uh, the uh, patron episode on Thursday this week is going to be um, uh, Bessner. It's a very Bessner heavy week. Uh, and Amber Lee Frost talking about the Jacobin article about uh, QAnon. Uh, uh, so that, that comes out on Thursday to get access to that and every other patron uh, patron bonus episode. So like the uh, the week, um, you know, last week we had the uh, the Sopranos, you know, recap episode with Mike Racine, uh, Nando Vila, and uh, Wozni Lombre. Uh, the, um, and... The uh, the week before that we had uh, Dasha from Red Scare. The week before that we had uh, Gene Bajalon giving a beginner's guide to the Kurdish liberation struggle. So, lots of good stuff up on there. So get access to all of that. For uh, you know, I, I can't not do the Pulp Fiction joke now. Uh, the uh, the monthly cost of a milkshake and a fifties uh, nostalgia diner in nineteen ninety four. Uh, you get all of that, and more importantly. It's uh, you know it's a way to to support the show if if you like the work that we're doing here and you want us to be able to keep doing it and you know pay everybody's salaries so again that's Patreon.com/slash uh, Ben Burgess but with that uh, let's uh, let's bring on uh, bring on the panel so I uh, have um, uh, Daniel Bestner uh, who as I say it's it's going to be a, a very a very Bestner heavy week because as well as as well as this and the uh, and the, the patron episode on Thursday, uh, he's also coming back on Wednesday to uh, talk about uh, Doctor Strangelove with uh, uh, me, Forrest, uh, Jacobin Deputy Editor Micah Utrecht, and uh, philosophy professor Ryan Lake. Uh, so that should be really good. Um, Katie Halper, uh, host, of course, of the uh, the Katie Halper Show. And uh, Rania Kalik uh, making her debut on uh, Give Them an Argument. Uh, Rania, do you want to introduce yourself? Hi, thanks for having me on. I'm Rania Kalik. I host the Soapbox channel and uh, new podcast, Left Bitches. And just a warning, I am in Beirut, so it's like 3 a.m. I'm a champion. Yeah, like that's amazing. I can't believe that you're. I, I can't believe that you're on at three a.m. <laughs> I do this to myself all the time, but I can do it. I can do it. It's like a, test of, uh, a test of like endurance, and if I'm like really old or not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm definitely too old to. You know, <laughs> I would be able to do that. You know, position reversed. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> what's that? No, no way. That's and truly. Can hear you because he's going hard of hearing. Already. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Older millennials here, I think. Right. This is like the older, except Forest podcast crew. We're senior millennials. I think senior. actually Rania's full on millennial. I think yeah, I mean, I'm pretty I much like smack in the senior. middle. Yeah. I'm smack in the middle of millennial. Centrist. You're a centrist millennial. I'm a centrist millennial. Moderate millennial. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I think I'm on the uh, I think I'm a uh, yeah, we're on, for yeah sure. definitely on the older end of of, of that. I think, I think of the uh, I think the annoying USA Today term is zenial. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. I'm millennial identify though. 
<laughs> I'm culturally, I'm definitely culturally yes. a millennial. Which means that Joe Biden has no empathy for me. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Give me a yeah. break. As he shouldn't. Like, we're such a stuck-up, entitled generation that, we, you know. Yeah, we didn't work hard getting arrested visiting Nelson Mandela like he did. Exactly. <laughs> we're so lazy. We just can't even, like, pay off our student debt. And You know what he actually did, by the way? Sorry, I'm just jumping into this. No, you haven't please, even introduced yeah. me. But you know what he actually did? He was he had to go through a separate uh like airport security line um because he's white and it was during apartheid and that is what he confused with being arrested yes. <laughs> i love it's it like, it's, so it's almost it's actually amazing yeah so like well, you guys are in the media like what do people say when they just say but like what are they thinking when they just say obviously bizarre lies it's so weird because it's so easily traceable it's not like 1948 right no access to anything and you could like he people might are, really believe but katie like he katie has a point he might really believe that waiting in line in like a weird checkpoint area was like arrest or something or being detained i mean in the very literal like arrest like wait you know or stopping but uh i don't i think honestly he's been so coddled i almost don't blame him i almost admired he's so coddled by the media um as is by the way mayor pete i mean just a reminder <laughs> this guy was named to the Department of Transportation, and nobody even mentions the fact that his Smart Streets program resulted okay. in the death of an 11-year-old black young man named Tristian Moore, and you don't know that name because no one's mentioned it, and it should be a hashtag, T-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, Moore, M-O-O-R-E. He was 11 years old. And even if you say, because I don't know enough about transportation, I'm not gonna say the Smart Streets program um, you know, killed a child and uh, has blood on its hands. And I mean, it did do that. But for all I know, an urban planner can say with a lot of certainty, well, it saved these many lives, right? Like nets, net saved lives in the net. But the fact that he is so entitled, Mayor Pete, Mayo Pete, and all of his apologists, that they don't even feel the need to make that point. They don't even have to mention this kid, 11 years old, oh, hit and killed by a car because Joe, because Mayo Pete's program smart streets uh removed a traffic light it's well, unbelievable well, wait, it gets worse because he after that happened so they yeah. removed the traffic light right and this was at an intersection that a lot of kids used to get to a bus stop yeah. to get to school and so that's how this kid died trying to get to the bus stop at this big intersection but then mayor pete blamed the kid and he darted into the he was street like, or he darted, yeah, yeah he darted into the street and like what are you gonna do the kid just ran to the street well there was no light like yeah, there yeah it's just like that makes me i do feel like we're living i mean the term gaslit is really overused but like that is inappropriate you know you know the, the media the media coddles these people except for and maybe this brings it back to i guess what we're supposed to talk about here uh when it comes to foreign policy. And if you guys watch the like rapid fire interrogation of Anthony Blinken, uh, Joe Biden's nominee for secretary of state by all these neocons like Lindsey Graham, like that's the only time that these people are treated with like skepticism and lots of questions is to see if they're sufficiently hawkish. Right. It's like it's like when you agree with someone that a movie is terrible, but for very different reasons. That's how I feel when I'm watching Republicans question uh, Dem noms and picks. Yeah. And of course, yeah. that Buttigieg story really reminds one of what Samantha, Samantha Powers caravan did uh, when she killed a young. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that. 
Uh, yeah, so, so it's like a, an analogous. What is this, Amanda Paris? Uh, was it in, well, I forget exactly where she was. It was Ronnie was the, probably there. I yeah, was probably there. <laughs> Actually, where was it? Now I want to look it up. Hang on. She ran over like a child. Yeah, her car. car. Yeah, in like Af in an African country. Hang yeah, on. during the Ebola outbreak, I believe, of 2014, and her caravan ran over a child. Um, killed killed the child. Um, it was like a hit and run. It was. Uh, it wasn't just like they, they didn't even like get out to check her. It was really. She found out. Cameroon. Yeah, yeah, her Cameroon, right, Cameroon, uh, and so her. Um, her, her car went ahead and she didn't find out about it until later. And she has a chapter in her memoir um, about it. It really, you know, obviously. Funny. I just, I'm sorry. I just like looked it up really quickly. The opening line in the guardian is that the young boy darted into the road. Not this, not the, darted. not the caravan, the, the Mayo Pete one. No, 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 no. The Samantha, the Samantha power one, the yeah. opening, like the opening sentence in the guardian Basically, like, is just, you know, implicitly blaming the child. So there is a pro an epidemic, a pandemic of black children darting into roads. That's what it's about. It's not actually it's about. It's global. <laughs> From South Bend, Indiana. I cannot around. believe that. Like, I thought you were clear. I can't believe that. Yeah. yeah. No, stop darting into all these roads when it comes to, you know, Democratic policymakers and politicians, you know. Yeah, and uh, but but the important thing is that is that Pete Buttigieg. This is a really historic thing because he's the first openly gay cabinet secretary who's going to be a confirmed by the Senate. There was one actor, right? One. So right. You know, they, they're slicing these through first, like really thin here, you know, to to make this work. Right, because Trump named one. He just wasn't confirmed by the Senate. Right. That's how it, it works. Yeah, that was amazing. That was like one of the best. Yeah. Yeah, he is yeah. the first openly gay. We have like it's there's like a trans person who was appointed to a position, and now we're getting Harriet Tubman on the twenty dollar bill. Not yeah. just like first openly gay, first openly gay. Yeah, but be confirmed by you. Yeah, you're gay cabinet secretary to be confirmed by the Senate because the Trump one was just acting. Uh, right. So, but again, the fact that like even Donald Trump was willing to do this should tell you something about how um, you know whatever. But radical, uh, and, yeah. But, yeah but this is this is definitely going to be the most uh, diverse, uh, you know, like diverse group of people to have ever like bombed and imposed sanctions yeah. on a bunch of countries for uh, for the over the course of the next you know four to eight years. And uh, and I want to get into that. I think a uh, I think a natural starting point for us. Do we have the uh, the clip of Biden talking about Iraq. Yeah, hold on. And you and I both know, and all of us here really know, and it's the thing we have to face that the only way, the only way we're going to get rid of Saddam Hussein is we're going to end up having to start it alone, start it alone, and it's going to require guys like you in uniform to be back on foot in the desert taking the son of a, the, uh, taking Saddam down. You know it and I know it. So I think we should not kid ourselves here. There's stark, stark choices. I happen to agree with your assessment. A- that diplomacy was picked over inspection-driven confrontation. B, that there's an illusion of arms control that cannot guarantee he will have no system of, uh, no weapons of mass destruction. And, and C, 
that as long as he's there, he's concluded he can absorb airstrikes. So I think you've done a significant service for this country. A different, a different policy judgment has been made. If we don't like the policy judgment, in my view, from observation has been made by the administration and the Security Council and our allies. If we don't like it, we should step up to the ball and say it. Because you forced us, and I think properly so, to a day of reckoning here about what our policy should be. I look forward to hearing what you have to say and welcome, even without the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense. I'll vote for this because we should be support compelling Iraq to make good on its obligations to the United Nations. I'm among those who had serious reservations about and flat out straight opposition to the draft, first draft proposed by the White House on September 19th. The draft raised more questions than it answered. It was not clear whether the authorization requested by the president to use force was limited to Iraq or applicable to the region as a whole. It was not clear whether the objective was to compel Iraq to destroy its weapons of mass destruction programs, to liberate Kuwaiti prisoners, or to end Saddam Hussein's regime. It was not clear whether the rationale for action was to enforce the UN Security Council resolutions that Saddam has flouted for the last decade or to implement a new doctrine of preemption. And it was not clear whether the administration considered working through the UN and working with allies important or irrelevant. Saddam is dangerous. The world would be a better place without him. But the reason he poses a growing danger to the United States and its allies is that he possesses chemical and biological weapons and is seeking with his $2 billion a year illegally skimmed from the UN fund for food, his oil for food program, for peace program, that he is seeking nuclear weapons. Contrary to what some in my party might think, Iraq was a problem that had to be dealt with sooner rather than later. I commend the president. He was right to enforce the solemn commitments made by Saddam. If they were not enforced, what good they would be, what good would they be, and what value those institutions? For me, the issue is never whether we had to deal with Saddam, but when and how we dealt with Saddam. And it's precisely the when and how that I think this administration got wrong. We went to war too soon. We went to war with too few troops. We went to war without the world when we could have had many with us. And we're paying the price for it now. Pause. Now, Senator, you voted for this war. Uh, sure did. With reservations, but you the did right vote for it. Vote too. So you would vote the same way today as you did a year ago? I would, but no one can really hold us responsible for the incompetence of the administration in the aftermath. Many, many people said, look, Mr. President, plan for this better before you go. So then is it any surprise to you that Spain has decided to pull its troops? I must tell you it's not a surprise, although I want to make it clear I did not predict it or anticipate it. I assumed, like I think the vast majority of people did, without a lot of reflection, that it was likely that you were going to see Asnar reelected. Democratic Senator Joe Biden is the ranking minority member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Barack Obama and I agree fully and completely on one thing. You've got to have a timeline to draw down the troops and shift responsibility 
to the Iraqis. We're spending $10 billion a month while the Iraqis have an $80 billion surplus. Barack says it's time for them to spend their own money, have the 400,000 military we've trained for them begin to take their own responsibility and gradually over six months, 16 months withdraw. John McCain, this is a fundamental difference between us. We will end this war. For John McCain, there is no end in sight to end this war. Fundamental difference. We will end this war. Governor. Um. The reason I voted the way I did was to try to prevent a war from happening because, remember, the threat was to go to war. The argument was because Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. So he said that I need to be able to get the Security Council to agree to send in inspectors to put pressure on Saddam to find out whether or not he's using, is producing nuclear weapons. And at the time, I said, that's your reason. All right, I get it. That was, the, the rationale was, that's the way to not go to war because I didn't believe he had those nuclear weapons. Joe Biden has had an incredible amount of work done. He looks good now. <laughs> Look at those cheekbones. Oh my God. He went through a phase was very badly done. You could like tell but back during those vice presidential debates with Sarah Palin. But man, he's so old. Yeah, he's so old. I haven't like, seen Biden like that in so long. He has like those that baby face, that baby fat of a 65-year-old. You know, he's just like he can like speak more eloquently and uh and now when he talks it's just like really grandfather in an old person's home. I'm really not trying to be like offensive. I know people get really yeah. touchy about that. But man Well he gets really so touchy old. about a lot of things. It's great, and like, around a lot of people. Down your neck a little bit. No, yeah. Listen up, man. <laughs> yeah. Listen, fat. Huh. <laughs> listen, fat. That's right. That's awesome. That was um, referring to Simone Sanders. He was just saying, listen, the, the facts. Imagine being Simone Sanders <laughs> like, playing Mad Libs. It must have been a constant, like, yeah. My God. Yeah. Man, he's yeah. Like, the, the way that he would just yell at voters uh, was 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 amazing. Yeah. And especially because after like the four years of clutching, you know, liberals clutching their pearls about uh, about Trump's, you know, rudeness and you know, lack of decorum, uh, that they were fine with that. It's the same thing as you know the point you know was making earlier about uh, how he just like again after four years of hearing about oh this is terrible, you know, the Trump administration, this is a post truth world uh, that you know, Biden wasn't punished in any way, you know, by the media or by the Democratic Party for just lying about being arrested in apartheid South Africa. And in 2019, September 2019, uh, he claimed and, you know, like we just watched that whole progression of what his positions were in Iraq. September 2019, he claimed that he'd uh, turned against the Iraq war the moment it started. He opposed it the moment it started. Even the Washington Post, you know, uh, said that, you know, like fact checked him on that. You know, which is like a rare instance of them bothering to do that. Now that he's arrested, it's even worse with Biden, though, because he actually played an instrumental role in whipping Democratic votes in the Senate to support that war. Uh, and one of his closest advisors at the time, Anthony Blinken, is now his secretary of state. What I will give Biden some credit for, and it's not easy for me to say nice things about him in this respect, is that when he was vice president, um, he was one of the voices of restraint when it came to a lot of the military interventions in Libya, 
in Syria, he was, um, I mean, he was a huge voice of restraint, but he, I mean, he openly, there was like one time where he came out and openly made a statement about, you know, uh, are the weapons that we're giving to the Syrians are ending up in the hands of extremists and some of our allies are giving extremists weapon. And he called out like Turkey and Qatar and the, and the UAE. And then he had to go and apologize to them the next day for saying that. But it was interesting to watch the, the confirmation hearing for Anthony Blinken, because one of the issues that a lot of the Republicans on the um, foreign relations committees had uh, with Anthony Blinken was that Joe Biden, his boss, opposed the intervention in Libya. And so Anthony Blinken had to like reassure them. He was like, he was like, yeah, but I was one of the voices like whispering in his ear that he should totally do it. And he ultimately did. So I won. <laughs> so yeah. really, like, it matters who's Biden surrounding himself with. And that's what's really disturbing because he's not I mean, he's kind of not even there. Like it's that you know what I mean? Like he's not going to be the one making making, yeah, making policy making it's the people he's surrounding himself with. And some of them are people who could have been worse. Right. Like it could have been Susan Rice. I think it's better that it's Anthony Blinken and not Susan Rice. I think it's better that it's Lloyd Austin and not Michelle Flournoy, but it's still not good. God, two men. Yeah. I would agree with that. And just one thing I want to emphasize for people who don't know, the very first clip was from the late 1990s. And that's because it was under the Clinton administration that a law was passed that made it official U.S. policy to overthrow Saddam Hussein. And so this is actually really interesting because people always talk about what if Gore was in there, blah, blah, blah. I actually don't think it's like so unclear that Gore, uh, Gore would have done nothing with regards to Iraq because, again, that was the policy of the Clinton administration. So clear, you mean? You said so unclear, you mean it, you don't think it was so clear? You don't clear? think it's so clear. So I don't think it was so clear that Biden would, I mean, that Gore wouldn't have invaded Iraq. I, think I mean, we were, we were on a trajectory, right? The U.S. had spent a decade softening Iraq up with these starvation sanctions that not only like killed 500,000 uh, children under the age of five, but also just destroyed the country uh, economically, destroyed its education system, its infrastructure, um, destroyed its society from the inside out. I mean, that's what those sanctions did. Uh, so you, you, the U S was on that trajectory, like, like Daniel mentioned, and, you know, you can kind of see a similar situation with certain countries now, like, um, you know, obviously the U S already tried to regime change Syria and it didn't work, but Syria is now facing this really, uh, horrible sanctions program that's starving the country. That's really destroying it from the inside out. That's like leading to this brain drain. That's making just life completely miserable in a country that used to be quite self-sufficient. Like it's not sufficient in anything now. It's completely aid dependent. That so, first that first clip was ninety eight, by the way, to um, Daniel. Yeah, point. yeah. So so you can imagine. Like I don't think it's totally out of the question that that Gore, you know, that Gore could have invaded Iraq. I mean, certainly uh, Joe Lieberman as vice president, you know, would have been, you know, in the Cheney chair, you know, would have would have been pushing for that uh, for sure. He might not have done it, uh, but if he didn't do it. Uh, he one thing I think we can be confident about is he would not have lifted the sanctions in Iraq, stopped the policy of regular bombings that have been happening, you know, throughout the later Clinton years. Uh, all of which means that even if there hadn't been a, an invasion, I mean, what would have happened in those you know forty years of Gore being president uh, would have been pretty uh, would have been pretty brutal, you know, because it's 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 just impossible to imagine him uh, him walking back from that, and certainly. I think Afghanistan, I mean, that's just a given. Like, of, of course, Gore would have invaded Afghanistan. You know, it's, yeah. it's interesting to think of, to, to watch that clip of Joe Biden be talk about how Republicans didn't have a plan for after, right? That was his big uh, criticism yeah. in the immediate yeah. aftermath of like when the war just like became a disaster. Uh, 
because he went and supported the same thing in Libya. Like, I, that, I mean, liberals, liberals do it. They just do it differently. Um, right. And what they did in Libya, I mean, they turned Libya into like a chaotic country that slave has no slave market, market though. Yeah. Right. They're open air slave markets, a bunch of, you know, a collection of fighting, you know, militias funded by different countries. Like there's no stability in that country anymore. Um, they didn't have a plan either for Libya. Like they just, it's the same. It's like both, I mean, both of these parties do tend to gravitate towards similar ends. They just kind of find different ways of getting there. Yeah, and, and I, and I, I think it is important to know with the Libya thing uh, that like does really show up. One of the things that's most horrifying about that montage of Biden clips, because later on when he starts to be a little bit more critical, his criticism is that they weren't doing it right. That they have right. that like there was there was some way that they could have had like a better plan. They could have done something such that they could have invaded, you know, like cluster bombed, invaded, and occupied Iraq, and the Iraqis would have liked it, and there wouldn't have been you know insurgency and civil war afterwards. And that same delusion is there, like even though whatever the differences are between those two wars, like that same basic delusion was there, thinking that you could, um, you know, that you could topple, you know, like bomb Libya and topple the regime there, uh, you, know, you know, et cetera. And that it would be fine. Yeah. And I think, I think that's really important to emphasize uh, just building on Ronnie's and Ben's points is that there really hasn't been a real discussion about sort of the fundamental principles of foreign policy since I'd say the Republican national convention in 1952, um, when Robert Taft lost to Droid D. Eisenhower and there was someone actually arguing that the United States shouldn't rule the world. So you wind up having, I think the narcissism of small differences in us foreign policy, where it's like, it's a particular, you know, particularly with liberals in the 1990s and 2000s, it was really about, um, uh, it was really about sort of building a coalition to use force as opposed to using force unilaterally, right? And like, there's some sort of difference in that. It's not the exact same thing, but the fundamental strategic posture is basically the same, which is that the U.S. is kind of going to use its overwhelming power to use force. So that's what's so interesting about this moment, because even though I, Trump didn't do much, as we can see, um, it was proven pretty clearly in, in, in his election that bashing U.S. foreign policy isn't really a third rail in any stretch of the imagination. So it'll be really interesting to see what people like Jake Sullivan or, or Blinken do. I mean, I'm pretty pessimistic, but I think it's also true that 2021 is not, you know, when Blinken was arguing in 2010, 2011 to invade Libya. Be interesting to see how someone would approach that situation. They, I honestly don't know. Again, I'm very pessimistic, but I just don't think it's quite the same um, thing. But um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I, sh I should say that, like, uh, that is a really interesting thing about Trump because I think both things are true that uh, Trump, by and large, uh, was pretty, like, you know, much more continuous with previous American foreign policy than not. Uh, he actually greatly increased the rate of uh, of drone strikes in uh, in Yemen. Uh, he uh, he I mean he came. You know, people want to give him credit for not starting any new wars, but uh, that's a little bit. I mean, voice that's a little bit like saying, okay, you scattered a bunch of matches around a dry forest, but like you know, you didn't have an actual forest fire. You know, he did tear up the Iran deal and you know and assassinate Soleimani and etc. All of that could have easily not for turned. lack of trying. It's not yeah, exactly. for lack of trying, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But it is interesting that rhetorically, uh, he he did sometimes say these very anti-war sounding things. Like that's actually, uh, I mean, that's something we pointed out in our article about the the fascism debate. That that's like a that's 
something that's like weirdly not remarked on very often in those debates that like something that all actual historical fascist movements have in common is that they have this constant, you know, uh, glorification of, of war and militarism and, and Trump really didn't. Right. You know, which like, like to like a remarkable extent, he didn't. Yeah. The Vietnam line is the close. What do you say? Uh, the sexual revolution was my Vietnam. Is that the line? That- <laughs> yeah, no, no. He, yeah, that's right. He said that. I think what he said was not getting that the was his yeah. Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Uh, so, um, let's see, do we, do we lose I mean, Forrest? He also, oh, uh, okay. that's, that's, that's okay. That's okay. Katie, go. No, I mean, I think it, it's like a, a weird combination, right? Because he, uh, was, he definitely ran as an, uh, anti-war. I mean, he ran as a right-wing anti-war person, right? Like kind of an isolationist, obviously, Oh my God. I don't know if you guys encounter this. I can't stand this one. If you want to say something like that, then you have people who think that they're really smart because they started studying politics and history like five minutes ago. They're like, he's not anti-war. He's racist. He's not anti-imperialist. It's like, yeah, we know that there's an entire history and political uh, sector of people that hate war for the wrong reasons. So I'm just going to say that I, I, I shouldn't even be, you know, giving these people that attention, but it drives me crazy. And I already start hearing it in my head. Um, but he definitely, you know, he was, he did have a, uh, at the same time, it's almost, the Suleimani thing is almost a perfect example. Like he was totally, he had like no restraint. He like killed one dude and he killed other people. I'm not pretending to you. I guarantee you Trump didn't know who the guy was when Mike Pompeo and Mike Pence came to him and were like, we have a terrorist. I disagree. I think In- it's me. I think it's meme based. This was meme warfare. He did some really good Game of Thrones memes against Trump. They went back and forth. So maybe Pompeo told Trump about him. But I do think it was personal. I don't know. I really I really don't think like I think that Trump put people in charge of his policy who were a bunch of militaristic nationalistic yeah. like christian crusading psychos um like Pompeo. he didn't really care like, trump doesn't have any principles he didn't really yeah. care he had some instincts against like expand like openly expanding the, sure. the wars and stuff like that and that was of course the one time he would get criticisms is when he would like rhetorically be like i want to draw down troops or i right. want to bring troops home and then everybody would like lose their minds but yeah. I mean, what I think is interesting about this incoming administration is, yeah, it's not 2010 or 2011 anymore. Americans don't have an appetite for more war. Um, and there's a lot more domestic things that need to be dealt with. Um, like there's this global pandemic that's like devastated the U.S. economy in a really dramatic way, but has also, I think, in like increased uh, tensions with China. And I really think that's going to be you know, the few that we know that's the future, right? That's the future of like warfare is this growing cold war with China, this great power competition. And I think the COVID issue accelerated that because China dealt with it. Their economy is doing great. They're like one of the only economies that's growing. They're kind of like a normal country right now, like nowhere else. And then yeah, the US is parties in Wuhan. Yeah, right. The US is just a complete disaster and people are facing economic ruin. The government still isn't really helping people. Um, and it's just like, I have a question for you, actually. I'm curious what you think about in light of that. What do you think about G sort of drawing back the belt and road initiative? Cause that's pretty interesting. Can you explain what that is for listeners and viewers who don't know? Oh, sure. So the Belt and Road Initiative was this big development uh, effort undertaken by uh, the PRC under Xi. And it was like, there was a lot of writing about, you know, the last three to five, six years about how this is like 
this shows that China has like world ambitions and it's going to get, you know, Garrett take over the world. And this was the big point for the new Cold War with China is the Belt and Road Initiative. That's what you'll find. That's what they point to. And sort of the creation of like counter hegemonic uh, institutions like the Asian infrastructure development, blah, blah, blah. But it's really the Belt and Road Initiative because it expands China into places like Africa. Um, but what actually wound up going on with it was a lot of like the host countries weren't particularly happy because uh, the initiative employed mostly Chinese workers and it wasn't necessarily having much benefit. And actually Xi, I think in the last two weeks has basically announced that like that initiative is kind of done. So that's actually pretty interesting uh, if we're like going to be China watchers, because that was like the thing that I think really would have gotten. What next, right? Like, what's the next thing going to be? And I think, you know, also the the what we hear more, more, more open complaints from like U.S. officials than the Belt and Road Initiative complaints and economic exploitation by China or whatnot is the. Um, is the communications issue like China's, you know, stealing our intellectual property because China's rising. Uh, and has made huge inroads in terms of like 5G technology, which as we all know is why we all have COVID. Um, no, I'm just joking. But um, but no, but, but 5G technology, it's the future of communications. China has um, definitely surpassed the US. The US knows this, the Pentagon knows this, they say it in their papers. And that's why you constantly hear US officials complaining about intellectual property theft because their whole thing is, oh, the only reason China's ahead in this technology is because they stole it from our companies, from American companies, that's our intellectual property. You know, they're putting Huawei under sanction to try and deny them um, access to certain things they need in order to build their 5G infrastructure around the world. So that's really the, 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 like, the real like future tension line with China. And um, I think it's just gonna get dramatically worse even under Biden. And I, I, mean, I don't know what that will mean for the Middle East because I actually do think some of the you know, people like to, it's true that both parties are really bad on foreign policy, but I do think that, you know, one positive aspect of having a Biden administration is going to be that there won't be this, there'll be less likely a war with Iran, right? If there had there been a second Trump administration, we would have had a war with Iran, like no question. That's where we were headed. Now there's really a chance to move back towards diplomacy. And I also think that speaks to the U.S. really moving out of the Middle East, not completely, but, you know, yeah. there's really, I mean, all of like, if you look at where American naval assets are, I think I'm, I don't know if this is an accurate number, but it's something like two thirds to three fourths of American naval assets are in Asia now. Right. Um, I, endless war. I think Ronnie's exactly right. I think we're going to actually see that drawn down. Um, I think uh, especially because of the the slow move off oil, which is going to really begin happening in the next 10, 15 years and sort of the coming at the end of these um, Afghanistan disaster is really going to see an end of endless war. The interesting thing is going to be where the U.S. community, including within like the so-called left, what we do with China. Because I think this is really interesting to me. I think there are some on the left who want good empire. Um, <laughs> like I would call like the genuine left, the socialist left. You know, you see oh, this yeah. sort of trend, not necessarily in Jacobin, but you see it. And so it'll be really interesting. I think as one of the many things, I think that has the the, uh, the uh, chance to maybe split the left a little bit or, over the approach. Yeah. To China. I think it already yeah. is. I think the issue of China already is splitting the left. Um, I think there's a certain like segment of the left uh, that is certain that it certainly sees China as like this huge tyrannical threat. You know, like they'll equate it like with fascism and you know they're Nazis and like they're genociding Uyghurs and just like. Uh, you know, all of these issues like are, are definitely already splitting the left. And then there's another like there is like a growing, I think, which is a positive aspect is there is a growing sense on the left that China is this new Cold War. And there's groups like Pivot to Peace that are arising that are, I think, doing really good work trying to like 
you know, manage that divide and like provide some resources on like why we shouldn't have a cold war with China. But uh-huh. I don't think that, you know, when I say escalation with war with China, like I don't think there'll actually be any sort of hot war at right. all. I don't think the U.S. would ever be willing to take on China in that way because China actually has, like, does, could actually put up a fight, unlike a lot of our other. Yeah, I mean, the, the Chinese People's Liberation Army, I think, is actually the uh, the single biggest employer on the planet. Uh, but uh, I, that might be wrong at this point. But I, th- I think I know that was true at one point. But yeah, I, I think there, I think there could be even like I remember Sean Goody as an editor Jacobin said this like a division in a few different directions, you know, a within wall. the left. Great wall. On, on this, right. <laughs> on China. Yeah. Well, a great wall that twists around. So it divides people in a couple different yeah. directions. So, right. you know, so, so there's the sort of like, uh, you know, socialism with Chinese characteristics is great view. There's the, uh, this is like Nazi Germany. It's, it's actually good to have a cold war with China view. And there's the, yeah, there are, you know, I mean, this this is not what we, you know, this is not the model of the society we want. There are real human rights issues here, but also a new Cold War with China would be disastrous of uh, you. But uh, I do want to circle back to that. And I also want to circle back to the Iran thing. But let's uh, let's watch the uh, Palestine clips. Oh, God. But were there not in Israel, the United States would have to invent one. The United States would have to invent an Israel. It's more than merely a moral obligation you have. It's a security necessity. It's for both Israel's sake and for the United States. The security of Israel and the United States is inextricably tied. And we will never, ever, ever abandon Israel on our own self-interest. Uh, he should run for president of Israel. <laughs> What's that? I didn't realize he had said that again. Okay. I remember seeing an old clip of him saying that like from like decades ago. That looks that was more recent. Like he's repeated that line before. We'd have to invent an Israel if there wasn't one. Awesome. There's no solution for Israel other than a two-state solution. It does not exist. It's not possible to have a Jewish state in the Middle East without there being a two-state solution. And he has played to all the same fears and all the prejudices that exist that in, in this country and in Israel. Bibi Netanyahu and I know one another well. He knows that I think what he's doing is outrageous. What we do is we have to put pressure constantly on the Israelis to move to a two-state solution, not withdraw physical aid from them in terms of their security. And lastly, I think that Senator Warren is correct. We have led by not the example of our power, but the power of our example. And the example we're d- demonstrating now is horrible. It's hurting us badly. Thank you, Vice President Biden. Judy? Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's wild. I think Bibi, Bibi Netanyahu is actually like my seventh or eighth cousin in like a genealogy. <laughs> really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, for real. Yeah, some students did like a genealogy on this famous rabbi that I'm related to. And condolences <laughs> really related to Netanyahu. That's that's gotta be like a. I wouldn't brag about that. That's terrible. Yeah. Leonard Nimoy and Leonard Nimoy. So you take the good. Oh, yeah. well, <laughs> Nimoy, okay. that's uh, that's that's quite a range, you know, from Leonard Nimoy yeah. to Phoebe Netanyahu. Good. Yeah. By the way, the Israel lobby is like freaking out right now over the possible appointment of Rob Valley, which I think is really hilarious. Um, 
He's not even on Palestine. They want to. He they're considering appointing him to like the as the Iran envoy, uh, but they also don't like his views on Palestine. But yeah, I don't think uh, with regard to Palestine, like I don't think anything's going to change. They're not going to move the embassy back. Um, and they always like they're start. Democrats are rhetorically starting to say things like about the Likud party. That's what they have an issue with. They don't have an issue with Israel. They have an issue with the Likud party because it's just like an extension of the Republican Party. Um, and uh, and so like Netanyahu's in charge, they'll they'll have some like rhet rhetorical complaints towards him. But as far as policy goes, they'll never actually pressure Israel in any real way. The only hope, in my opinion, for Israel-Palestine is the U.S. getting out of the Middle East. Because the U.S. is the problem in that situation. They fund once they fund an arm one side of the teeth uh, to do whatever they want to the other side. Yeah, so, so this is kind of... Wait, I, Ron, I'm just curious. Could you expand on, on what you think would happen? Because I'm not really an expert in this, but I've always thought like um, the best that could happen is that like somehow magically domestic politics in this country transforms. Um, but because I, it doesn't seem to me that the region really cares that much about Palestine. The region doesn't. I mean, that's the issue. I mean, people, the street does care symbolically still to a degree, but there's just been so much utter devastation and destruction from one country to the next, that Palestine isn't an issue that can really unite people the way it used to anymore. I think the war on Syria really like was the death blow to the Palestinian cause. The Arab Spring was the death blow to the Palestinian cause in the region because it sectarianized the region. Um, people became Sunnis and Shias, not just in Iraq, but everywhere. Um, it became like an issue of sect. Uh, and, and that's as a result, because Palestine, of course, emerges from like the 50s and the 60s era of Arab nationalism. Right. So, right. I mean, that that is what that politics is organized around. So it's so interesting that you're seeing this fallout. Um, I just yeah. Want, yeah. I mean, and also, you know, it's it's and also, you know, I think one of the reasons that Palestine was I wouldn't say immune, but to a degree, it was kind of immune from the sectarianization that happened all around it throughout the Middle East. Um, Palestinians were somewhat immune from that because they were still united by Palestinian nationalism. So they weren't seeing themselves as Sunni Arabs, right? Whereas like in Syria and Iraq and Lebanon, like Sunni nationalism really took hold across the region. Also, you know, for a lot of reasons due to like the um, influence of Gulf funded media, which really took that on and spread it. But um, I think, you know, moving forward, the issue of Palestine is really going to be all about the, what the international community being like enough. And they're not there yet. They're not there yet to say enough. Um, I have a really, really pessimistic view. I don't think that, so I think I. it's wonderful the activism that takes place across the US from, you know, a, a lot of like Jewish activist groups and Arab activist groups and just, you know, activist groups who care about this issue and want the occupation to end and want Israeli apartheid to end. But like, I don't think that's necessarily where the solution is going to come from because they don't have influence over U.S. politics yet. Um, I think the Israel is an extension of American empire in the Middle East, just like Saudi Arabia is. And until the U.S. stops uh, supporting this like racist apartheid state, um, it's going to continue to be this way. And eventually, like, it, I mean, I used to think that at some point, like, it would just be so awful. The U.S. wouldn't be able to continue to support like a segregationist state. But no one cares anymore. Like, yeah. And I think you know, even in the yeah. U.S., Syria, Syria, the issue of Syria, the war in Syria fractured even the Palestine solidarity and movement in the U.S. So there isn't even 
like unity in the US among activists around Palestine anymore because they all hate each other over Syria. It's actually really sad. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I mean, honestly, your joke earlier about how Biden should run for, for president of Israel. I mean, like like it is it is remarkable watching that clip because like the way he's talking about Israel is a way that it's like bad and embarrassing enough when a politician talks that way about their own country. Like it's the special magical country with, you know, it's destiny. You know, if it didn't exist, you'd have to invent it. Uh, but he's he's That's using true. it. It's if Israel didn't exist, they would have to invent it because at the end of the day, like Israel does act as a sort of like enforcer of American rule in the region. That's its role. And Israel, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm talking about sectarian states. Israel was like the original sectarian state. in the Middle Yeah. Well, East. Well, that, well, that's, that's the other thing that's, that's amazing about that. Uh, because uh, like where he's, he says like, you know, the, I mean, it, it was actually the clip where he's, he's expressing real, you know, what passes for liberal sentiments about this, that, oh, you can't have a, a, you know, Jewish state there, you know, without a, you know, without a two-state solution, you know, there's, there's just no alternative to that. So what's being excluded in there as just unthinkable would be applying what in any other context you'd think of as just like really basic liberal democratic principles that, oh, states should represent everybody who lives in their territory and, you know, that it should represent them all equally and, you know, and all of that stuff. That's what's being being excluded that, you know, that you could have something that, that didn't have this, this, this special identity and character as an ethno state for, you know, for, you know, the, um, you know, people who are, you know, the majority of the citizens of Israel proper. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can't have a Jewish majority state in an area of the world where not, not the majority isn't Jewish unless you have this like brutal occupation um, with these brutal segregationist militarized rules where there's like laws for different people based on their sect. I mean, that's what you have. Um, and until that, until that dynamic like ends, until support for that ends, as long as you keep hearing Biden talk about the need for a two-state solution so we can have a Jewish state, like you're just not going to see an end to that. It's going to continue and it's going to continue to get worse. And, you know, part of my pessimistic view is because how successful Israel has been. Israel has done a phenomenal job at basically mastering like a control of an entire population. Like they can't, like Palestinians can't move. They can't go to work. They can't drive. They can't do anything without their movement literally controlled from one place to the next. It's pretty incredible in a really dystopian kind of way. Um, so, you know, there's no, and there's no Palestinian resistance to it anymore. All of that's been completely pacified every resistance, every form of it, whether violent resistance, whether peaceful resistance. And when they're, you know, and even if there is still some peaceful resistance where people are getting shot at the border fence in Gaza, the world just doesn't care. Did you I see the movie um, Mayor, about the mayor of Ramallah? Uh, I, I, I strongly recommend that people take it out. It's a documentary that just came out. Uh, actually, it's about like the month when Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem mm. in Ramallah. And it just shows the sort of Kafka-esque comedy in the original sense of the word of human frailty and human failure of what it actually means to be, uh, you know, a government official in, pal in, uh, mm. in the bank, not, you know, and so um, uh, being suffocated by like settlements around you. And I think it's a really good um, short, but important primer on what this actually is. And one of the things just building on what Rhonda said, one of the things that the guy says, it's like, no one really cares. Uh, you know, like the, everyone pretends to care and no one really cares. And I think that's become evident why I, one of the reasons that I'm so pessimistic about the future uh, of what will happen in Israel-Palestine.
Yeah. Uh, so, so how about the, I mean, I would assume that the answer to the, the question, you know, Daryl, uh, you know, says, is Biden going to do it? I assume, the, I assume what that means is like moving the embassy back, but I assume yeah. that's not. He already said no. Like his yeah. administration, they already said they, I, well, okay, at least in rhetoric, Anthony Blinken during his confirmation hearing said no, they would not move the embassy back, uh, out of Jerusalem. So that's going to stay. I mean, it's mostly a symbolic move anyway, right? It doesn't mean that much. Trump already did it. Um, and they don't, you know, obviously they don't want to pick their fights. But what I do find interesting about- They do want like, to pick their fights. The Democrat, yeah. Well, they right. do want to pick their fights, but with the Democrat, like the foreign policy establishment, um, they're still like playing on the sort of like neocon terms. You know, even when they don't have to, it's like their default position to play on their terms, to try and appease people like Lindsey Graham and people like Marco Rubio. Like, I know, I know that these people don't actually, I know that they want to sanction Venezuela. They want to coup in Venezuela, whether Democrat or Republican. That's yeah, all. Yeah, and they recognize, I mean, did we talk about okay, how we recognize Guaido yet? Uh, not, not yet, we'll get there, but Juan yeah. Guaido well, is worth backing. Well, Juan Guaido well, is an yeah. idiot and a failure. Yeah, um, well, well, well actually, yeah. actually, actually, one of the best, I mean, so yeah, we will, uh, we've got some Venezuela clips coming up, but they have a, uh, but, uh, but I, I, I do have to say credit where credit's due. I, I think the, uh, I think that the most insightful thing that Donald Trump ever said was that Juan Guaido was the, uh, was the Beto O'Rourke of Venezuela. <laughs> Uh, he really looks like he really looks like oh by the way I don't know if I introduced myself and I'm just saying this because uh, I host the Katie Halper show I'm saying this because earlier on you uh, you mentioned uh, that this is a week big week for Daniel Bessner and I'm like well it got even bigger because I'm apparently having him on on Thursday too and um, Rania uh, I'm watching Daniel's face that like did not track for a while did you forget that we had done that Anyway, it's a little bit high, but that's okay. I just, uh, oh, okay. I just think about, I just look at every day. I take it one day at a time. I'm very sad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wake I up um, but also, Ben's going to be on regularly, and Rania's been on a bunch. So I'm just reminding people that uh, to support these shows, and it's and also uh, really important to support foreign policy, uh, critical foreign policy voices. So uh, this is a really important show, and also just want to give a shout out to. Uh, Kevin Gostola, um, Eugene Perrier, uh, Max Blumenthal, Aaron Mate, uh, Anya Parampel, and um, you're gonna make uh, some people mad. If you didn't yeah, I don't. Mad. I I know, but I was thinking like there are people who I'm I'm thinking of the people who I often ask questions to about this and how marginalized a lot of them are, and it's really important because they actually go to these places and do the work and call them whatever you want. They're still good. So I'm using this space to. To amplify their voices. Yes, but but then what about all the ones you erased because you forgot yeah. to amplify them? That was like a hmm. huge act of erasure. You're I'm right. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, like Great. Samantha Power, yeah. I should have elevated her. Yeah, yeah, because she is a woman. Yeah, I think Samantha probably been elevated enough, but um, I mean, I also do want to give her a shout out for one of the best things that she said so far is there's this policy. There is a now a family identity politics um, where everyone's excited mm. because, as um, Samantha Power said about um, Tony Blinken, uh, it is do not don't don't let this get lost. He is a new father. And it's amazing. I'm not kidding. He's a new father. Like, it's amazing to have a working dad in this administration. Like, okay, hold on. 
First of all, his wife is named Evan, so I think maybe she was trying to woke wash because she mentioned how wonderful Tony and Evan are, and I think he was banking on people thinking Evan is a, a guy. But also, like, we don't live in a world where men are expected to stay home yeah. when they have kids. So yeah. I don't know what I'm, weird... I'm pretty, like, I'm sure Eisenhower had people in his administration you know, whose wives were taking care of young kids at home. Yeah, like that, right. That's not some that's, sort of representation. Yeah, yeah. It's so right. weird. It's so weird. Yeah, and also imagine all those new dads who, who are like newly non-dadded thanks to like all the policies in, yeah, right. in Libya, right? So like I'm yeah. glad someone has their kids around. <laughs> no, it's a fundamental problem with all of this humanitarian interventionism. One, it's that people send children not their own. And two, it's to protect children who they often wind up not protecting it. Um, this was, I mean, it's a foundational tension to some, I, I strongly recommend people read Samantha Power's book, or at least my review of it, because this is the type of thing that is constantly, she is constantly doing this throughout the book about how she's yeah. a young or how she's a woman, how she's, you know, so concerned with children and blah, 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 blah. And it's in and support. Rwanda. Oh my support. God. Yeah. Yeah. Right. In Rwanda and, and she's in Bosnia. And not to say, I mean, these things are all horrible, right? But it's just totally uh, divorced from the actual realities or more importantly, the history of what happens in all of these places and the imperial death machine that she, for some reason, thinks is going to be able to be the savior of the world. It's so weird. It's well, so this is a very, that's a very liberal tactic, too. You don't see this so much under Republicans, but this is a very democratic tactic. They did it all through the Obama years is really using the humanitarian intervention responsibility to protect yeah. Uh, like that whole tool that Samantha Power is like a huge advocate of. Um, I do like her for calling Hillary Clinton a monster, right? Didn't she do that? She called Hillary Clinton a monster? I think so, didn't she? Oh, wait, was it for the right reason or the wrong? Was it like because Hillary Clinton the wrong reason. The pain thing. It was, it was during the campaign of 08 when Power, who had actually volunteered to work in Obama's Senate office, like they got connected through Harvard, I believe. But it was during the campaign that she was being interviewed by, I believe, an Irish or a Scottish journalist. And she said uh, um, it was a hot mic uh, where she basically referred to Hillary as like a for a campaign thing, not for any policy. Oh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. She was sidelined on the campaign. And then and then once he won. Uh, yeah. she was I mean, Hillary was a monster during that campaign. Was she is a monster? Well, yeah, yeah. Hillary, like, 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 uh, like, uh, no, no, but but it is amazing how little people remember like what that campaign was like. That, like 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 she was almost doing proto Trump stuff. Birther, uh, to, like, she was writing right the birther Trump. thing. Yeah, she, she yeah. did the birther thing. She said the, that the uh, pastor that, thing that, that hardworking white people, you know, were uh, were her base. Uh, she, uh, yeah, Bill, she, Bill Clinton you know, compared Jesse Jackson winning the primary to uh, a primary uh, in South Carolina to, yeah, she, uh, she, to she Obama. Said, uh, she said it uh, that uh, even after Obama had gotten up the delegate threshold, she said, "Well, he could be assassinated." No, but no. Here's what she said. Here's what she said. She refused to drop out, and she was asked, "So you don't buy that party unity?" So she goes, "No, I don't. You know, because um, my husband didn't get the uh, nomination until uh, June. Um, June." Oh, June, the the month that uh, Bobby Kennedy. We all remember what Bobby Ken what happened to Bobby Kennedy. It was like Bill Clinton knows how to be a terrible person in a very suave way. Hillary Clinton cannot do it, so it was just cringe. She had to apologize because it was very clear that she was basically saying, "Yeah, she's so stilted. She's so bad at it. Yeah, much more clearly." And he just knows how to like, what is it? You can turn um, a sow's ear into silk or something like this old expression probably comes from Arkansas, honestly. But yeah, he definitely like, she was basically saying, I can't drop out because, uh, you know, uh, Bobby Kennedy was killed. And of course, implicit in that is the fact that like, 
Obama was uh, required like more security than any other ca uh, candidates. Obviously, there was like so many death threats. There were so many death threats against him, thanks to a combination of racism and Islamophobia. Um, and then Bill Clinton was asked about this. Sorry, I don't mean to go down the Clinton rabbit hole. I'll just wrap it up quickly. But Bill Clinton was asked about whether he regretted the um, Jesse Jackson comments. And he said, no, he didn't. And that the campaign was playing uh, the race card. And then he said that on the radio, okay, he said that on radio, and it wasn't like lost or burned in a fire, like it was transmitted onto the radio. And then the next day, he was asked on camera, which also was not in a fire. So all of this documentation exists. He was asked on camera what he meant when he said that they were playing the, uh, the race card. And he said, when did I say that? And to whom did I say that? So again, he gets away with it, kind of, and Hillary doesn't because she's not. And which no, this is not a sexism issue. She's not a good liar, and he is. Yeah, yeah, which, which which is amazing because I'm told the post-truth era didn't start until 2016. So, um, yeah, I, it's I true. They were know. pioneers. They were pioneers. Yeah, there we go. Why are you there erasing the Clintons? <laughs> Both Fair her enough. as a woman, and he is, a, of course, a you know of the uh, the not non-rich person so yeah because of this video being shown in a re-education camp such bad, they're they're such bad people like they are monstrous people i mean yeah, they they are. Are, like, like i mean obviously that's unfair uh, to monsters then like welfare reform was a humanitarian you know disaster for uh you know, for, for many, like, you know, single mothers and, you know, and, and like, it, it was like, that was like really like disturbing Dickensian stuff that's been largely yeah. memory old. And then of course, like the, the overseas monstrousness was on an entirely different level. I mean, Madeleine Albright as, uh, as Clinton secretary of state, you know, famously said she was asked point blank, you know, half a million, you know, Rocky children have died because of the sanctions. Is it worth it? And she said, yeah, it's worth it. Uh, you know, that was the that was the Clinton administration. And then, of course, off the clock, he's just flying around with Jeffrey Epstein. So, I mean, this right. like, and on the and clock, flying around with that uh, execute a mentally disabled uh, black man, Ricky. Yeah, Ray 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 crazy conspiracies about them. Yeah. Like, well, yeah, well, this this is what uh, in that. Um, yeah, that episode that's dropping for patrons on Thursday, but we already recorded it with uh, Daniel and uh, Amber Frost. Uh, talking about their uh, their Jacobin piece Excellent about article, cool. by the way, I read like, that the Jacobin article, yeah. very very good. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Said to report, but <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it was very, very good, good, and and one of the, and that's like a point they make in there that like yeah, I mean, this is it's not hard to see where people could get the idea that it sounds plausible that you'd have like an international cabal of pedophiles involving powerful and well-connected people. You know, they got the details <laughs> wrong, but you know. Yeah. It's, uh, Chris, Matt you Christmas know. was on my show saying this the other day, how like at least like Q people, they like do some work, they put some work into it. It's more believable than like Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi saying that they wanted to see Trump's phone records to see if he was on the phone with Putin during the storming of the Capitol. You know what's crazy about the Isn't storming of the Capitol? You know what's crazy about the storming out loud on a podcast, on Hillary Clinton's podcast. Did you guys hear about this? It's yeah, insane. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's, but what was crazy, What I think the craziest part about the storming of the Capitol to me or the part that I'll continue to wonder or think about, it will continue to come up in my mind, is like the fear that all those Democratic lawmakers and some Republican lawmakers felt because of the rioters outside. And they should feel fear. Those people were really scary, right? And they were like calling for hanging Mike Pence or whatever. Um, 
but I won't comment on whether that's a good news. Uh, moving on. My point is, is that um, so many of those Democratic lawmakers are so supportive of those kinds of like that, that same sort of sentiment and like rioting and uh, like attacking government officials and, and adversary countries. And sometimes we fund them and support them. And the reason I so you just put up a comment that somebody who was watching noted about Gaddafi, the U.S. under like, you know, intervened in Libya and literally through NATO gave air cover to a bunch of extremists who murdered this guy on camera, you know, with a bayonet. Um, and it was really brutal. She laughed about it. And so it's just like really jarring to me to like see that sort of behavior and then the horror they feel when like, I mean, yeah. really yeah. like and even lesser versions. Like I wouldn't even call the people who were outside the Capitol anywhere near the people oh, who were yeah. armed in Libya and like, you know, shoving a bayonet. No, no. I mean, look, I, I wrote an article with Daniel about the, uh, about January 6th and, you know, why we didn't think that like it was, uh, it was reasonable or sane to say that, you know, that it was like literally a threat to like end democracy and impose right. fascism. Right. That wouldn't have happened. Uh, but, you know, you could have totally had murders of lawmakers that could have sure. happened. And and yeah. then, uh, but then, yeah, I think that, you know, somebody, I, I'm sure somebody could say, oh, but that's totally different because, you know, because, because this, uh, we. It's right when they did it over there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a lot of that. The way that yeah. by saying, well, the difference is the U.S. is democracy, uh, right. you know, but then like you could say, but then you can, um, and, and I do want to, uh, I do want to do Iran before we move off to the, the Middle East, but I mean, just complete the thought. Uh, that, you know, certainly, especially, um, like, especially when you start looking at Latin America, there, there's a, not only a long history of us doing that to other countries that, that are democracies, uh, but, uh, but a very, uh, a very recent one, you know, people always want to like portray that as, as right. ancient Cold War history, but, uh, but they, yeah, right. But I mean, right. It's, I mean, like, yeah, but the same way that, you know, Chile happened in 1973 or, you know, Guatemala in 54, uh, the attempted coup against Chavez in Venezuela happened in yeah. 2002. The uh, uh, the the one in uh, against uh, the uh, democratically elected uh, Zelaya uh, president. Oh, of yeah, Honduras. Honduras. Yeah, which we did yeah. not declare. What was that? 2008 was that? When was that? 2011. Yeah, which which okay. we did. Which yeah. Hillary did not would not declare a coup. Uh, would not well, declare not a coup and lied about the reasons. Yeah, but the, but this is amazing. Uh, in the first edition of her memoir, like her, her second memoir, the one that came out around then in the first edition, she actually bragged about uh, like diplomatic negotiations to make sure that this left-wing strongman Zelaya wasn't allowed to come back to power. And then, uh, and then the second it edition. a very good strong man if it was that easy to take him out. I know, right? <laughs> it seems like a weak man. But, uh, in his pajamas, in his pajamas, they took him out of his pajamas. But, yeah. but that, in, that in, in the second edition, she removes that passage with no explanation. You know, it's it's like 1984, you know, the, yeah. you know, just goes down the memory hole. And no one, the like, media didn't investigate. Like nobody like looked into it and asked why. The media that actually has access to her never yeah, yeah. her why. They yeah, didn't, I mean, they, they couldn't care less or they didn't know, yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine, yeah. can you imagine yeah. someone yeah. asking her, like, why did you remove that part? I mean, it's like... Do you guys, you guys remember when she was, like, during the uh, during the election against Bernie in 2016 at one point, or maybe it was in 2015, she was like, she was like, we have to send them back so that their yeah. parents stop. We have to send a here. message. We have to send we a, a message. Christiana Amapur asked her about 
kids coming across the, the border um, and, you know, what should be done with them. And she's like, yeah, we have to send them back to where they came from because um, because uh, we have to send a message. And of course, Amo Bernie was like, these are kids. Who are you going to send a message to? These are children. But yeah, yeah, yeah. that was wonderful. Right. No, and, 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 and obvious, which, by the way, is is incredibly illegal because, you know, because the all, you know, almost all of them had at least a prima facie plausible claim to refugee status. They were, they were fleeing Honduras. A third of those children were right. from Honduras. Yeah, but that they, was they, the most disgusting part exactly. of it. Yeah, they were the disaster that she participated in causing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, which which makes that particularly, and and yeah, actually, just to you know, I mean, since we're talking about the monstrousness of Hillary Clinton, there's all like also, uh, also like one of the things that came out of the uh, WikiLeaks, you know, the uh, State Department cables was that while she was Secretary of State, the State Department was lobbying the Haitian government against raising the minimum wage to I think what would have been yeah. about five bucks an hour, five bucks a day uh, is is what it would have raised it to. Uh, and this is also happening in yet another recent example. Uh, you know, Jean-Bertrand Aristide was democratically elected and yeah. he was literally it's taken out of the country by U.S. Marines in yeah. 2004. So what people were afraid of happening at the Capitol has happened and then much more so in lots right. of places that, that do have democratic governments. But uh, but I do want to. Um, but it's but altruism before, because we're doing it to other countries. That's the difference. Yeah, everything yeah, and we it's, just, and it's obviously we just listed. Can you believe that there's actually this like common belief among among the establishment that we actually do good in the world? Like all of the disasters and destruction that we've talked about in just the last hour. Well, the media such just a foreign policy, such a destructive what, country. What's really interesting is that I've been thinking that a lot of people um, actually believe in it less. I think this, I'm actually publishing a piece about the game Call of Duty, which is about the Cold War. But what's really interesting is that it's actually super critical of the United States. And like, a, oh, I was the game very, is the game is it's like the, the United States is like rapacious and horrible and there's all these things and blah, 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 which is one surprising. Um, and But it's related to this in that the game like doesn't believe in American empire, right? But the game can't imagine something different. And I think that's the situation where we're at. You're like Mark Fisher had his capitalist realism. You can't imagine a world outside of capitalism. I think many elites- Imperial realism. Right. Yeah. What I'm Imperial realism. Uh, you can't imagine a, a, a world outside of the American empire. And I think that's actually where we're at. And in some sense, that's even more grotesque than the 1990s when at least Madeleine Albright really thought the U.S. would bring peace and prosperity. I don't even think Joe Biden, whatever's left up there, thinks that any longer. Yeah, well, he, I, I, it's like, uh, do, you, do you ever watch that movie American Made? Do you remember this? Yeah, of course. We've talked yeah. about it. What is it's it? Totally talk about it. Okay, I have a uh, scene you know, here. I was accusing Danny of being high earlier. I, I, I'm clearly uh, losing it. Well, you, you know. did say you were, we were elders at the beginning, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, which is an amazing movie, right? So this this came out a few years ago. It's it's a it's a fun movie, but it's like the thing about it is, uh, so it's Tom Cruise playing uh, this, oh, this the real guy, yeah, the uh, one about Barry, Barry Hill, you know, who is who is this like. CIA pilot, you know, who was who was also with the sort of collusion of both, uh, you know, working for the cartels, you know, uh, in uh, both supporting the Contras and, you know, bringing drugs right. back. Okay. And the thing that I found amazing about this movie is that we've gotten to the point, and this goes to, to Danny's point about how, like, the sort of decline of belief in the, in the sort of innate goodness of American foreign policy, that this it's a very mainstream Hollywood movie. I mean, this, this, like Tom Cruise was yeah. in it, but okay. it was just sort of matter of factly. It's like, oh, yeah, remember when we were running drugs in Latin America to support death squads? You know, that's the thing that happened. That's like, it's just like, oh, yeah, no, that's like a funny little detail about the 1980s, you know, that we did that. 
Well, yeah, it's interesting. Ideas that we did it right against communism. I think that's a really good point about um, about the the this sense that the U.S. has to be in charge or else. And that's really what the China. I mean, not to bring it back to China, but that is what the sure. China fear yeah. is about. If we're not in charge, China will be in charge. And we just assume, like the you know American elites assume that that the Chinese are like have the same. Uh, sort of drive and desires that Amer that mm. the American empire does. When China's actually not an empire, it doesn't do imperialism, at least not the way America does. It doesn't yeah, try and it doesn't try to it doesn't try to impose its system of governance and its system in general on other countries. China will work with like whoever. It's not like the US has conditions, right? They're, they're like, you have to be capitalist, you have to implement austerity, and you have to support like the Israelis. Like that's the kind of like how the US functions we won't be your ally unless you do these things. Whereas China's like, if you're, it doesn't matter if you're socialist, it doesn't matter if you're like, we'll work with Cuba, we'll work with Iran, which is not a socialist country, but we'll also yeah. work with like Israel and we'll work with Russia. I think China might be like, like the, the imperial ish thing about China is like, it might be interest being regionally hegemonic but it's certainly yeah. not that's different. that's different though that's different than wanting to like expand like, the u.s is global, yeah this it's is just like, a different i mean it's just a different system like the u.s is this is my whole theory because i do think i, I ben i think i talked about it with you before that the united states is almost unique in this universalism and that's because of christianity which like the christian reaction that founded this country is like hyper universalistic and hyper christianity and when you look at americans trying to sort of examine what other states are doing you get people like george kennan saying marx and Leninism want to take on the world. Stalin never thought he could dominate the world. That's like a purely American insanity. Uh, and I think the same thing right now is happening with Xi. Um, the United States, I agree with Ben, they want to be regionally hegemonic. They do not want to have any challenge from Vietnam or Japan. You mean China. You mean China. You said the United States. Sorry. Uh, with any of those powers or, or India, I think that's actually going to be the next big thing. I think uh, the, uh, the next big regional conflict is going to be between India and China already clashing in Pakistan, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But I, so they want to be regionally hegemonic, but that's not the pure craziness of the U.S. universal. Oh. 700. It's, extension, it's an extension of European no, colonialism. No, it's it's a, basically, no, but it's the roots of European colonialism. That's what okay. America is, right? It's like that, like you said, you mentioned Christianity, that sort of like crusader colonialist drive to like expand and suck up and own everything it's, and a it's capitalism too yeah, I would say it's a Protestant colonialism. It's not like a Catholic colonialism. Like there were differences between the Spanish empires and other empires. But I think like this, this particular form of like 17th century British religion. Yeah, has yeah. I mean, mercenary versus missionary. Kind I'm of sorry? like kind of missionary versus mercenary. Yeah, uh, yeah, and 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 exactly. Yeah, there's a missionary aspect in it for sure, and I think that missionary aspect. I think that culture became essentially mainstream liberal secularism. The David, this historian David Hollinger, actually writes about how like that culture. But I do think it's become instantiated in how Americans view their role in the world due to the Cold War. You know, where you get this fight against godless communism, and it provided this particular form of thing, a series of institutions to dominate the world, and this is why we get this peculiar universalism that Americans impose on other nations when they yeah, don't actually. No, no, it, yeah. It's like the, uh, but yeah, I think the distinction, you know, it's like, it's like the Noam Chomsky line about the, uh, the cold war that, you know, the Soviet union was regional gangster, but the U S was the global gangster, you know, that e even when the Soviet union was doing, you know, like Khrushchev was invading Hungary or whatever, you know, it wasn't. Uh, yeah. You know, it's like its own backyard. And actually most, I think most countries, most powerful countries behave that way. That's relatively right. normal behavior is to want to influence the people around you and to want to kind of like dominate and be, 
you know, hegemonic. Right. In, in your particular area, but it's a relatively unique disease to, you know, to try like and dominate. global dominance. It's like sort of global. Yeah. yeah. But it's I also really, yeah. do think that there's, no, something, I, I, there's something that I think we should talk about or mention, which is that as like, you, you know, what's the, what's the Tom Cruise movie called again? Uh, uh, American Made. Made. And then Dan, you know, you mentioned uh, a, a game. And I do think that there's often a kind of realism of like a deceptive realism that we think of as somewhat refreshing because it just like call it's just like names it. But that is another way to normalize things. And I think that we see this a lot with like I often think of the difference between an American Zion American Jewish Zionist and a um and I'm a I'm a an American Jew, by the way, and a uh, an Israeli Zionist. I know, I know. So you don't, yeah, and a, and an Israeli Zionist, and like the uh, the Jewish Zionists, like liberal Zionists, often will be like they wanted to leave, they didn't want to stay there, and it's like totally revisionist uh, narrative of how Israel was founded. Whereas Israelis are like. Yeah, it was ethnic cleansing. And if we had done more, it wouldn't be a problem today. Like with uh, Benny Morris himself, right? Who documented yeah, ethnic Morris cleansing and then went on to say that we should be bombing Iran, right? But like there is, a, and I think there's like an embrace of badassery that can happen. And I think we see that with Israelis a lot. And that I think with movies like American Made, you do too. And it's almost like padding. It's like, yeah, we're badass. And it was so, that, such ugly, ugly history, but it's kind of cool also. This would take us in a different direction, but Katie, that's also related to Jewish masculinity after the Holocaust. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Going on there. A lot yeah. going on. You have to like rebirth, like, like re envision. Yeah, the, the cowering Ashkenazi guy playing the corner as he's yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not like the weak ghetto Jews who let themselves be put in cattle cars. Yeah, bronze. The bronze. And that was actually. Israel just yeah, very I'll shut now, up. We made a concerted bronze gods like me and Danny, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You? But Israel made a concerted effort in the 50s and the 60s to like hire a bunch of public relations firms to basically project this image into the world. So yeah. like this there's a lot. I mean, there's a lot of interesting sort of links here yeah. between consent and imperialism and all that stuff. Yeah. And they are yeah. the proto-woke they are they were woke before anyone else was woke because they were grounded in trauma. And they got to use that a lot. No, it's true. They did. I mean, I'm not. I I, I think it's I think it's stupid to not understand. No, exactly. You can like, like, you like, cannot you can be critical of the founding of Israel without dismissing why it happened, which I think is like no, a thing that sure, we need sure. to do more. But anyway, yeah. No, no, Zionism did a real Zionism did uh, so much like uh, remaking of the region too, because it also took all of these Arab Jews that lived in all of yeah. these Middle Eastern countries, and it completely erased their history. And like projected European Jewish uh, culture onto that, like it forced European Jewish culture onto them. Yeah, but it's and weird because it also, like Dan was saying, it like it was a weird thing. It was like self-loathing, but like culturally hegemonic Ashkenazi, but also trying to appear Sephardic. Like it was right, almost Sephardic. Sephardic, Sephardic is like Sephardic strong faith. and like you know brooding and like you know uses their hands to work. Like, they work the land. Yeah, yeah. But it's yeah, also yeah. interesting. It's also interesting how like how um, there are these like era. It, whenever you see these videos of like these, uh, you know, because a lot of uh, working class Israeli Jews are like of Arab descent, a, a significant number of them. I think a majority. 
And so sometimes they happen to also be the most hateful of Palestinians. So you'll see yeah. these like anti-Arab like videos of anti-Arab yeah. rallies in like Jerusalem. And they're just like, you know, saying like Arabs are savages. And I'm like, do you see what you look, look at your like? face? Yeah. <laughs> like you look like you could be my cousin. Like what yeah. the hell? Is it? so it's actually quite sad, though. It like there used yeah. to be a lot of in Lebanon and Syria. In, yeah, uh, I mean, in the, the Ottoman Empire, the, the the Mizrahi Jews got along. I mean, they were a, a, right. a part of the of the structure in a, in a real serious way. And it's just you know horrible European yeah, colonialism. Yeah, it took away a huge like Zionism took away like a huge chunk of the Middle East because Jews were also in the Middle East. They were part of like the um, the. You know, they were like a part of the, they were lawyers and doctors and they, they were- Really, like Rania, and accountants? Class. What else? They were. No, really? they, were, no they, were, they were part of the professional class. Like they were, you know, they were tradesmen yeah. and like it was no. like part of it was so like a brain drain. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> I can't help it, right? Fair enough, fair enough. So, so you mentioned- you Bargain mentioned, hunters. Uh, so, so, so Katie, so Katie mentioned- uh, uh, <laughs> Katie mentioned bombing Iran uh, a, a few minutes ago, and before we leave the Middle East, you know, I, I do want to touch on that because, you know, we were talking at the beginning of the episode about how so much of what Biden has done, you know, in in the first you know week, I guess, uh, of of his term has been, and you know, this is good as far as it goes, which is not very far, but it's it's good as far as it goes has been about. Uh, reversing a bunch of uh, of things that uh, that that Trump has done. I mean, the criticism, of course, is that it's just restoring the January nineteenth, two thousand and seventeen status quo, which is what led to Trump. But you know, it has it has done a lot to reverse that status quo. But one exception, as far as I can tell, is that it doesn't really seem like there's a lot of sign that uh, Biden is any great in any great rush to restore actually the most important diplomatic accomplishment of the Biden administration, right. which is the Iran deal. Yeah, which he's not, re which he could just re-implement without conditions, but he's not doing that, uh, which is very scary and very dangerous because as you said, it's not even the status, it's not even a return to the status quo that was, you know, innate, uh, facilitated by his, by the president for, to whom he was vice president. So I know a lot of the people, I don't know them personally, but I know through people I know who know them, that a lot of the people that Biden has put in place of uh, like the foreign policy realm really want to go back to the Iran deal. Anthony Blinken has a very um, personal like desire to go back to it because he actually spent, he's like attached to it because he spent time negotiating it, right? They like these people like lost sleep over it. So they do want to go back to some sort of deal, but there's also this weird like, desire to appease neocons still like they don't want to look soft right like we i mentioned this earlier democrats like even you know centrist dems have this like really weird um psychological problem uh where yeah. they're always trying to appeal to the right like if you watch that confirmation hearing anthony blinken was like promising he was promising lindsey graham i will talk to you first i mean part of that was probably just so that like he would confirm him but also, I think he kind of means that like they don't want neocons to be sad. They don't want the Israel lobby to be sad. Like they don't want to be attacked by them. And I'm like, who cares? Like you actually do have a mandate after four disastrous years of Trump to go in and renegotiate this deal. And you're not doing it. I mean, there was some positive. There was also some positive talk. I don't know if it's true that they're considering sank. They're considering like exemption sanctions, exemptions due to COVID like or I'm sorry, like relief. 
due to COVID immediately, but also that no one said anything about that publicly. Like in the middle of a global pandemic, the U.S. is sanctioning countries to a disaster, like devastating degree. Iran has experienced the highest numbers in the region, highest death toll, and their medical sector has like been collapsing the last year and they can't get like medical equipment and drugs they need because of U.S. sanctions. And in some cases, vaccines, it's, it's, it's becoming a problem with getting vaccines too. So yeah, I don't like, I, it's been pretty so far, um, not, but also, like, not good. Couldn't they just like reinstate them, the, the deal with Iran, as opposed to demanding that Iran guarantee certain things, which is what they're doing now. But they don't want to. They've even said they said they said they want to use the right. attempt to negotiate to get Iran to make concessions. But with sanctions, it's a little bit different because they can renegotiate a deal. But Treasury sanctions take a really long time to undo. There's like all this legalistic BS that goes along with it. If you yeah. can't undo those overnight, like I don't even I don't even know. I don't know if I'm actually if that's accurate, but I'm pretty sure that like it, it, takes, it is. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the important things in the coming years, you've already seen sort of echoes of this, but it needs to become the mainstream left position that economic sanctions are absolutely horrible and are as, as worse a form of warfare as anything. And I think that's coming. But, um, you know, let, let's say if Bernie won the administration, I think he would have seen calls on, on the left for sanctions against different regimes and things like that. So I think it needs to become uh, the, we need to start building toward the, towards the consensus position. Is it as bad as troops on the ground? It is destructive. Yeah. It destructive. Hey, I'm living them. I'm living them. Not to the like. I I'm in Lebanon. Lebanon it doesn't have as severe sanctions as say Syria or Iran does. But I'm I I see the consequences of these sanctions every day. Uh, it's awful what it does to pe regular people. Like you can't you know you you can't access medical treatment uh, because of like lack of devices because they literally can't get equipment. Like you can't make basic bank transfers. You can't get your money. Like your 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 Money has been like it devalues the local currency so dramatically that overnight your income goes from something stable that you can like live on to nothing like it destroys it just destroys livelihoods in a in a way that is people even say is worse than war. Um, it gives people no future. Everyone tries to emigrate. It causes like huge brain drain. Doctors leave. Um so yeah, it's that does need to become a position of the left. I feel like in general, the left in the U.S. really doesn't care that much about foreign policy um, because there's so much domestic, there's so much like domestically that needs to change. But I really think that we need to do a better job of like linking those two things. Right. Also, especially um, because money, a lot of money goes into the Pentagon. That well, exactly. Matter. That's that's one thing, right? Is a lot of money goes into the Pentagon that should be spent on things like Medicare for all. We shouldn't have this huge bloated budget that you know causes us to have this like military industrial complex that literally lives off of needing war. But uh, more than that, you know, I think that the last four years of Trump really showed this is like you can't have an empire without it affecting the country domestically. Like the things that the U.S. does abroad, especially financially, it does to itself. Like all of the austerity right. and awful trade deals that we've pushed on the rest of the world that have like, you know, impoverished people and destroyed livelihoods. We literally do it like domestically to ourselves. All of that comes back. Like it's, it's, and I think Trump was really an example of bringing that war home internally in a really, in a really dramatic way. Um, and we're going to see more of that. Like you have to care about foreign policy. These things are so connected. And also it's a huge distraction because whenever we have some boogeyman 
like an evil boogeyman that we all need to be scared of and we have to beef up the national security state. It's like everything becomes about that. And it takes all of the energy and all of the wind out of like campaigns for, you know, a more equitable policies domestically. Like it's, yeah, it's just. No. Yeah, no, absolutely. Add just importance. I think, I think Ronnie is right. I agree with it. And then we at home, what we need to do is sort of attack the weak points of these empires. So for example, just last summer, Congress refused, including basically every Democrat refused to um, reduce the defense budget. It's $740 billion by 10%. And that's because they have various interests uh, being organized to protect these things. So it's actually very, very slippery because, you know, a lot of people will do it because defense factories have jobs or things like that. And, you know, so th these are very complex issues that I don't think point to easy answers, but it's important something we all need to know about. Yeah. yeah I mean, uh, it is easy in some ways, right? Like we can't, it just requires some uh, finessing and some demands. I think that like we get so stuck in this, like, technocratic uh marsh uh of like of you know how are we going to do it we just can't help it uh, i'm not saying you're doing that daniel but i'm just saying that that is like part of the things that we have to yeah. unpack and i do think one of the things that bernie was so good about bernie was that he really like normalized outrage and um exposed the abnormality uh of the status quo and so we got to keep doing that. And, you know, then this is a, yeah, we have to have well, another. Well, because he, you know, he expressed that outrage and that, you know, rhetorical style common to those lawyers and accountants and, uh, and hagglers. I know. I call that, I call that tradition. That's a crotchety mensch. That's the, <laughs> the uh, allegory of the crotchety mensch. I'm naming it. I've said it before, but I've never said it was an allegory. So that's what it is. Yeah. All right. Well, um, in, in terms of, uh, to go back to someone who's much less of a mensch, uh, Joe Biden, uh, I, I think we have a clip of Biden talking about Venezuela and Florida. God, yeah. You know, we also need to rebuild our ability to work with our partners throughout the Western Hemisphere to realize the enormous potential of this region and the world, to confront those leaders who continue to oppress the rights of their people. We should be leading the international effort to confront the massive humanitarian crisis in Venezuela. Maduro, who I've met, is a dictator, plain and simple. And he's causing incredible suffering among the Venezuelan people to maintain his grip on power. The Venezuelan people need our support to recover their democracy and rebuild their country. That's why I would immediately grant temporary protective status to, Ve to Venezuelans as president. So the Republicans in the Senate can't keep blocking it like they did again just last week. And I'll make sure we're supporting neighboring countries that are being overrun with immigration because of Maduro, like Colombia, which are caring for millions of Venezuelans who fled their country in desperation. I'll use sanctions as one of the tools for a comprehensive strategy that includes humanitarian assistance, international pressure, and support for democratic actors in Venezuela to force the regime to embark on the road to a free and fair election. We also need a new Cuba policy. The administration's approach is not working. Cuba is no closer to freedom and democracy than it was four years ago. The fact there's more political prisoners, the secret police are as brutal as ever, and Russia is once again a major presence in Cuba and Havana. Not Russia. <laughs> you know what's really annoying about everything he just said is uh, 
The U.S. is like best friends with Colombia, which is a right-wing <laughs> narco government that is literally participating in the murder of activists, like social activists. Yeah, like one of the of highest people. murder rates for uh, labor organizers. Yeah, right? like in the last year, like over like hundreds have been killed uh, with the complicity of the government. Uh, and Honduras is literally a narco state. That's why people are fleeing Honduras. Like it's just people are fleeing Venezuela because of your sanctions. You destroyed their economy. Like they're going to Colombia because they need work. Yeah, and if, and if you're going to say like, oh, it's not really the you know the sanctions, it's really you know this or that that you know that uh, the Maduro government has done, then you know then hey, let's at least lift the sanctions so we can test that. Yeah, let's right. see. Yeah, let's find out. Let's find out if it's the government or your sanctions. Also, the word dictatorship. Like, I think you know there are a lot of adversary countries that are dictatorships i do not believe that venezuela is one of them i think it's the most outrageous claim yeah constantly say well, the well, brutal Maduro dictatorship well but well bernie sanders actually uh took tyrant some he said a tyrant brutal tyrant he called yeah, chavez he, a brutal tyrant no he yeah, called well, maduro so 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 he did he did do that although he also took some heat in the early stages of the primary because he wouldn't say dictator right like, right they, 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 tyrant, yeah. that you have to be willing to say uh, what's what was the uh, what was the quote that you pulled up for us? So the quote that I pulled up is from uh, is from Blinken's um, Blinken Senate hearing. And, is that you, Katie? And, and, and during it, during it, um, he says that uh, while Biden would uh, seek to more effectively target sanctions on the country, which aim to oust President Maduro, who retains control of the country. He said the new administration would look at more humanitarian assistance. And then on top of that, during that is when he said that uh, Biden will recognize Guaido as as the interim president of Venezuela. Yeah. yeah. Guaido, Amazing. I don't know if anyone's from New York City, but like uh, watching this, but Guaido looks so much like a Catholic school kid who wears a big backpack running for this, the bus. It's just, I mean, it's this is not anti-Catholic, but it is like Dan. You're from New York City, right? It's, you know what I'm talking about? The yeah, guys wearing the, the like the navy blazers. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I know yeah. exactly what you're talking about. The big yeah. backpack because he has to have the exactly. Bible and stuff. Yeah, exactly. Like, to me, he looks like a douchey frat boy who's like always on cocaine. Like he's all oh, that dude's always high. If you look at like just look at it, zoom into his pupils. That guy is always coked up. He always looks like he's been snorting coke, like all the time. I mean, he can just go across the border to where the people are fleeing, yeah. right? <laughs> just go to Colombia and get some yeah. cocaine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and, and it is also amazing that after months of this big issue about uh, it, it being terrible, and it was bad, you know, that the uh, that the Republicans wouldn't recognize uh, Biden's, you know, victory and in, uh, in the election. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and and they're trying to get the guy who lost the election to to somehow you know be able to keep power. Uh, you know, Guaido, uh, you know, I mean, didn't even run for president. You know, he's he's like, I mean, he there's no basis of like there's there's nobody voted for him for this office. Uh, you know, the uh, the assembly did, but they don't actually they're not actually constitutionally empowered to do that. Uh, not a single Venezuelan cast a vote for Guaido for president. Yeah, like, that's an accurate statement. Yeah, right. And, uh, <laughs> and, and but you know, but you're still saying no, we get to decide that, you know, that this like and like whatever criticisms you have, you know, and I, I agree dictatorship would be going way too far, but like, you know, whatever criticisms you have of, you know, the 
of uh, insufficient democracy in Venezuela, you know what would be even less democratic? I don't think the U.S. Voted, voted for for president. But, like, right. I don't even the U.S. I don't think the U.S. gets to make the criticism. Like it's so absurd to me that any U.S. official thinks that they have the moral um, high ground to to decide what is and isn't a democracy. When look at their freaking allies. But I think that's I think that's Ben's point, which is like even by the own ridiculous like police of the world, which we don't buy into. But even with that as your being your your moral basis, which again everyone on the show rejects. Like even that is just so incoherent when you are trying to elevate someone who was not democratically elected. Like, just pick a narrative. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like if they had, like, you know, brought Paul Ryan back or somebody to, to run the House, and then suddenly the U.S. was like, that's our president now. Like, nobody really <laughs> voted for him, but, you know, he's in charge of the House, so that's the guy. Like, actually, <laughs> <laughs> is a good equivalent. Or it's kind of like that time that Pete Buttigieg declared himself the winner. Oh, of my God. Yeah, but at least he actually ran and did get some votes. Yeah, Not yeah, a lot, but, yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. Like, he, uh, Pete, Pete Buttigieg did almost... Right. You know, uh, so, so it is, it is slightly less ridiculous, but, but it is all questionable. My favorite Biden. thing about the Guaido thing is that um, the I don't know how brutal a tyrant Maduro could be because Guaido spent months going around yeah. to military bases saying, "Follow me, I'm the I'm the real president." Right, uh, <laughs> and there were a lot of protests there. I thought, like, why would he walk around doing that? Imagine what would in happen. America, that guy would be in a prison cell. Yeah, could you imagine if someone in the U.S. was like running around trying to like literally incite a coup from members of the military? What would happen to them in America? And this guy was just walking around totally freely. But I, the, the thing is, like, you've got to think behind closed doors. The Biden people have got to be like, man, how do we get out of this Guaido thing? This guy is pathetic. Like, yeah. I know obviously they want a puppet, but they can't possibly like him for real. Well, like, he's so bad at it. The Trump administration so was doing it. it. The Trump administration was doing that. The Trump administration was pretty much behind closed doors saying, how do we get out of uh, Guaido? That's when, the, that's when the Trump Beto O'Rourke comment came out was because Trump was right. trying to reverse that and find pretty much anybody else to be his puppet Venezuelan leader. That's pathetic. And he's also like openly corrupt. Like he doesn't even pretend not to be. He's just like trying to steal money from um, the Venezuelan oil company that the U.S. basically took the assets, like stole the assets of. Um, I mean, him and his whole crew are just like, are just like making millions. Well, they don't even do what they're like. It's just, it's just pathetic as like a puppet. Worst puppets in history. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so, uh, so before uh, before we wrap up, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, you know we talked about uh, you know Venezuela, where in some sense uh, it seems like Biden's actually amping up uh, the uh, the attempts to uh, you know undermine Maduro and impose impose Guaido. Maybe he'll find uh, like a trans woman in Venezuela to be. <laughs> that that could be the self-declared president and then we can all get behind it because it'll be super woke anybody that <laughs> anybody that says no to the coup is transphobic now yeah seriously <laughs> oh my god i could imagine that uh, <laughs> but then like the other thing and well, by the way i another term i i patented uh, is woke washing which is when you use identity politics to kind of launder the fact that you actually have an evil person in power 
I think I edited the woke washing clip. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah with with Brianna Joy Gray and uh, Ryan Callick right here. Yeah, yeah. That, that was that was one of the first clips I edited for you. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thanks, Forrest, for your editing. <laughs> International mystery man of the editing left. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't right. even know that you were the man behind that. Well done. Uh, edit. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but what about China? So it seems uh, so. That's another thing where it's a little unclear that that Biden even really wants to go back to the uh, the pre-Trump status quo, at least to me. Oh, he doesn't. His team. I mean, they're like the China hawks. I mean, that's just the trajectory of U.S. foreign policy. It's almost like it doesn't matter who's in charge. And I think that the Biden administration will probably be more effective. I do think there is like a, a certain contingency of people who seem to think that Biden's going to be close to China. I don't think that's true at all. Oh, like the Trump, yeah, the Trump. Yeah, like the Trump people like, were like, Biden's good. That's not even a little bit true. And also, you know, the, um, you know, before they left, Mike Pompeo declared the uh, China's treatment of Uyghurs to be genocide. And whatever you think about that, um, it's, that was, that's a huge like escalation rhetorically in like the diplomatic realm for the U.S. to do that. Like China and the U.S. are totally on this really, I don't know if it'll continue under Biden, the level of diplomatic hawkishness, but something that I've, that we've seen from China for the first time since I can remember is even their diplomats are kind of like trolling the U.S. Chinese diplomats didn't used to do that. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. Chinese diplomats used to be very like reserved and, you know, calm. And now they're just like totally like trolling the U.S. online with their Twitter accounts. It's kind of unprecedented and a little bit funny. Yeah. Uh <laughs> Which doesn't mean, again, it's like you can have a criticism of uh, China's treatment of uh, Uyghurs, but that doesn't mean that, like, it's ever a good thing for the United States to be ratcheting up any um, uh, kind of, like, uh, belligerent discourse with uh, any country, including China. And, of course, well, it's obviously also, super hypocritical. I also think it's very important, though, to, like, that we... Because everybody wants to say, like, obviously, like, obviously, China's not a perfect country. No, no question. They have human rights issues. You know, they're not exactly like a, they don't have the same political freedoms that we have in the yeah. U.S. Um, I don't really care so much because that's China's issue. But we do also have to it's it's, it's like we have to interrogate where certain information is coming from. Yeah, well, obviously, it's a disproportionate focus. something is going on with the way China is treating Uyghurs. However, some of the more extreme claims like organ harvesting and like things that yeah. there literally is no evidence for, except for like this one guy in Germany, who's like a right-wing Christian fundamentalist and has also said anti-Semitic things. Yeah, so, so like we also like, shouldn't be scared to point out where the state department is getting its claims from. And I think there is a fear on the left of doing that because that. the left has been so beaten down over the decades for like being an apologist for this or that dictator or like not taking human rights violations seriously enough. The left is scared of being called genocide and dictator apologists. Well, so, I'm not so, saying so, to deny yeah. or apologize. Well, honestly, if we're being honest, I, I just want to say something for myself. Like I actually feel it's a bit the opposite. Like I feel like I can't have, and I get it. I think that like, I'm just gonna be honest. Sometimes like I do feel like nuance can be a bit of a privilege. Like it depends who we're talking to. Yeah. But I would say that, like, yes, do I think that the, the like the media very much vilifies certain countries and regimes? And do I think that's dangerous because they're doing that to, like, massage the public into being war ready? I do. I also don't like I think among friends on the left, I get frustrated in the opposite direction. 
where I get where it's coming from, but it's like, we can acknowledge that there are bad things that happen in countries. And that doesn't mean that we should have regime change. And it also doesn't mean that people in the media, and this is the biggest part, I think, people in the media who are highlighting that, like Jake Tapp or whatever, are total hypocrites. They have no universal standards and everything they're doing is in the service of the State Department. Yeah. And well, I, like it's like, when I think I yeah. think of like, remember, you know, the Kuwait, like the Iraq, yeah, Kuwait. Right, the lies about the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking about that earlier, right? Because because Saddam Hussein really was this- He was extreme, a monster. Extremely right. repressive monster. monstrous. Right. A dictator killed tons of Kurds and Iraqi communists. He was also uh, you know, our friend. He was also yeah, our yeah, friend. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah. But, yeah. But, but also the incubator thing was obviously bullshit. And right. so you, and you, we you killed many more people because of what we did there. And because yeah. of that lie, that lie was used as right. like a justification. Right. And yeah, yeah. That's why. That's why I feel it isn't like we shouldn't necessarily right. shy away. Right. But I guess I think we could be honest about it. Like, I totally get it. But like, I, I think we can be honest about what's going on in another country. And also, uh, I agree. like, yeah, you know, because I agree. I guess I see the other side of it. And maybe this is well, me also yeah. having like, this is me also like reacting to like uh, covering Syria. Yeah. Ex yeah. Well, that's uh, the thing. I mean, the Syria stuff makes me want to make a, okay, I'm ready. Oh, Everyone's going to cancel don't me. No, but like the, the, the Syria stuff is so one-sided that all it's like that. If you want any honest discussion about Syria, then you need to actually engage in what the point of talking about Syria is because nobody will ever do that. And it's a lot like the Iraq argument, right? And like the media does not allow for any space of any discussion where you can acknowledge the bad things that are done in certain countries. Because if you're doing that, all you're doing is putting more weight on one side, which is again, a pro-war narrative. Well, but I think it is also important. Like, I mean, obviously there's a balance. You don't want to fall for the equivalent of the uh, of the incubators thing. Uh, you know, they're out there like, you know, false or misleading propaganda is, is yeah. super common in these contexts. Uh, but also it like going the other way and uh, and sort of being a conspiracy theorist about every piece of information about, you know, some terrible thing that some regime that happens to have come into conflict with American empire is doing is not helpful. It's it's not politically helpful because it doesn't it doesn't make you more effective. I don't see that being the problem. I don't see that being the problem on the left though. Like I, I, I see yeah. the opposite. Like I I wish that was the problem. Like if that would be easier to deal with actually. Well, and I don't think what the happens is the there's like an overcompensation in the service of time. I'm not even kidding. Like in this service of time and space where it's like everything is so in one direction um, that. Like, what is the value of even every word that we put into an article? Like, I'm just being, I think I'm saying something that obviously is going to get me in trouble. But like, don't, I think we shouldn't underestimate how coordinated and unfounded so many things are that are said by the mainstream, the quote unquote mainstream media and how things and are called conspiracy theories that turn out to be actually just theories that are not theories. They are like descriptions of things. And so... Uh, we do have to like, I, and I do, you know, there's the Chomsky position, right? Which is like, well, let's focus on the stuff that our own government is doing that's bad. Like we can condemn other governments. But I do think that like the left does spend a lot of time. Um, and I also think like, you know, if we wanted to have a more nuanced conversation that would require the media actually doing anything but like uh, reciting talking points from, which right. it really does. Capitalist media, we can't have capitalist controlled media. And we'll yeah. never get good coverage under capitalist control media. And that's yeah, I, 
Yeah, I actually had, uh, that was one of the first articles that I wrote for Jack, but it was called a uh, free press is too important to uh, trust capitalists with, which as I remember Michael Brooks pointing out at the time is a terrible headline. It should have been, you know, a free press is too important to trust the free market. That's just such an right. obvious, you know, yeah, better wow, word. Really, but yeah. Uh, but yeah. Sure. I just Let me very briefly plug a book by Sam Leibovic called Free Speech and Unfree News. And it shows how in the 30s and 40s, the idea that a free news was a news free of government control uh, and why that took hold in the United States. And it opens up new space for thinking of new models about what, what a post-capitalist press uh, might look like. So just want to highlight that. Yeah, that's okay. Like of course, there was a uh, there's a Venezuela super chat question we missed earlier. Yeah. All right. So, um, the question is, how far do y'all think the Biden administration will take regime change measures in Venezuela, especially now that the EU is not recognizing Guaido as a leader? I actually think, and this is like a, I'm usually really pessimistic, but I think that the Biden administration is gonna like try to lessen the temperature a little bit with Venezuela, with like trying to regime change Venezuela, at least I, for a little bit. I agree. I don't think the people who he's appointed are going to want to focus on Latin America. Yeah. Uh, there's a great line in The Best and the Brightest by Halberstam where he's like, within the foreign policy establishment, Latin America was always considered like a rate place for second rate minds. And my guess is that that, that prejudice still holds in a lot of the American foreign policy establishment. So the people are gonna to wanna to go out there, they're gonna to wanna to make a big thing and they're not gonna use the sort of GOP anti-Chavez playbook from George Book in 2004. I think they're going to um, cool down Venezuela and really refocus on, um, my guess would be Europe and China actually, and, and Asia in general. Yeah, there's a there's actually it keeps going back to China, but there really is a, a tug of war starting to happen with Europe, not just with China, but with Russia. Um, Especially after Trump, like the, there's European countries that have ha that have started to have warmer, better relations with Russia. Um, there's also fear of this person who uh, Angela Merkel, her like successor, um, her likely successor, has like been not pro-Russia, but wants better diplomatic relations with Russia, and that's starting to freak out all of like the pro-Western Europeans. And also like Europe's been making all these like business deals with China and the US is really pissed off about it. So I think you're right about the this like focus on on Europe. Um, great power competition is back, Matt. It's gonna be great power competition. It's not gonna be these small unimportant states. Geopolitics is gonna, I guess is gonna be what's gonna uh, really get the Biden administration going in that first year. Yeah, and and I think that uh, that in that context where where the China stuff is more important than I think what Katie and, and Rania you know were, were talking about earlier about what you know whether some people on the left err in the direction of uh, of denying uh, you know bad like denying bad things that you know the governments that come into conflict with the U.S. do or in the direction of being too credulous about it. Uh, at the at the risk of sounding like a mealy mouth centrist, I, I I honestly have seen plenty of both. Uh, I think I think that both of those things happen. Uh, but it, it is it's just one uh, side has like no power. But I'm not exonerating it. Yeah, but it is yeah. No, well, I mean, also to the extent that we're talking about stuff that's happening within the left, I think nobody <laughs> has any uh, has any yeah, power. That's a good point. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, but it is one side is 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 saying stuff that is our that is being said by powerful people, and it is being used, um, uh, functioning as a way to make people like war ready. It is. I mean, whether or not I'm not well, saying every well, leftist who says that is 
is intentionally doing that, but. Well, I mean, so, so that's, the, so that's the question, right? Are you, is that something like, uh, you know, what's the relationship between the thing that we all agree on, which, which is, you know, opposing wars and, uh, and then having sort of a nuanced and honest, you know, appreciation of these things. And I, I think you can argue that in both directions that obviously if you're, if you're being credulous about ridiculous propaganda that's being used to justify wars, that's bad. Uh, but if you're being, um, you know, but if you're slipping into denialism about real stuff, then, uh, then not only does that, you know, is that unhelpful or just, just on inaccurate in other ways, but I think it can make you a less effective message. I agree. I agree. That's true. Anti-war politics I think what we're all agreeing on here is yeah. that China is the model. Yes. That's where you were going with that, right? That's, that's correct. China, yes. Syria, yeah. any other country you want to throw in there, Iran. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of them. Some models of government that we yeah, should want yeah, yeah. to be wanting to somehow replicate. all three of those things. The uh, China. <laughs> like, yeah, there's like let's take them all and mush them together and make a country out of that model of government. <laughs> and, and that is what I was hoping would happen if Bernie Sanders became president, right? <laughs> uh, especially the Iran part. Uh, what are you going to say, Danny? I had told him Bernie. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't. I don't. I don't even. I don't even remember. <laughs> okay. Uh, fair enough. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think actually, um, you know, uh, Daniel did, has written some really good stuff about the question of like, if, you know, what we actually would have hoped to happen if, uh, if Bernie Sanders become president, like what a, like, uh, what that foreign policy, you know, not what it necessarily would have looked like, but what we would have uh, hoped for, uh, for it to look like. Uh, with seeing, okay, don't start any new wars, don't impose sanctions on other countries as, as the beginning of wisdom. But it's, uh, but I, I also do think, and this gets back to the question about being too technocratic uh, or uh, or ignoring an important complexity, that it's it's not it's not the whole thing, and that uh, the left. Uh, I know we're we're nearing the end of the discussion here, but you know, I, I think the American left hasn't spent nearly enough time thinking about how to uh, wind down American empire. You know, how, like, if we actually did have any power, how that would happen. Ben, it's funny you should say that because one of the things, like, that I was, like, promoting should Bernie have won would have been basically creating a series of task forces because we don't even have, like, basic power constellations of this, like, enormous domestic and global structure. Uh, so, like, there's no even, like, a weak point to attack right now. So I think what we could spend, you know, we're going to be out of power for a long time. We could spend some time thinking through that and really trying to get, like, an old 30s-style yeah. power constellation going on where power I also would just say two things. So one thing is related to what you're saying. And and Ben and Forrest, I heard you guys talking at the beginning about how, you know, people shouldn't get too excited about Biden moving. And of course, that's totally true. And he will, you know, he's not going to people are like, give him, you know, create the opportunity so that they can No, it's not opportunity. It's like they need to feel political pain and fear not doing the right thing. That's how they're going to move to the extent that they move. But I also and you guys were saying, oh, obviously, that's not going to happen. It's going to be elections and, and, you know, making a bigger squad. But like we, these are unprecedented times. So I kind of want to urge people like or caution people away from being totally um, 
like clairvoyant or predicting the future because I do think like this pandemic is uh, does make bring a lot of things to uh, is bring a lot of things to to the, to a head. And um, the other thing I just want to say about imperialism, like there yeah. is like there's this, you know, uh, there's been a there's obviously a liberal left divide. And then there's kind of, you know, increasingly a left left divide that we're seeing, um, like a lot of online divisions. But I would say that one side of that left left in general, I'm generalizing, but focuses more on imperialism than the other side. And to these, my my comrades and I use that word, um, having known what that word means. I mean, everyone's welcome, but some people use that word and it's like, you need to actually Google that to know what you're talking about. But uh, I would say that I think there's a mistake made, and this is obviously, I'm such a Bernie bro and I love Bernie and I, you know, I put him on a pedestal, but I do think that the anti-imperialist left can be um, like purity politics wise, purity politically, whatever the word is, they can engage in a purity politics that's dangerous, I think, with the squad and with leftists. Because here's the thing, like, are any of the people who are serving in Congress as anti-imperialists as we would like them to be? No. Any people in the Senate? No. But if you don't think there's a difference between someone who would vote against a sanction and someone who wouldn't, and if you don't think that that makes a real concrete difference in the in people's lives, I just think that's like, I just think it's kind of ridiculous. So I'm just yeah. saying that because I think that it's a bit like the, oh, they're all so bad argument, uh, especially when it comes to foreign policy, is is a fairly weak one. And that even if we acknowledge that these people have an imperialist framework that we reject, like if you care about the lives of the people in those countries, who which are being killed through, not just, I mean, through war, obviously, but more frequently through sanctions, right, where people are just dying, like we should look at that and look at yeah, how I these people can be. Right. Like recognizing, recognizing the nuance, okay. the difference between oh, Biden. Oh, I, 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 I know. I know. Daniel has to, has yeah. to go. Right. I, like I was saying, one side cares about imperialism, I, I, the other doesn't, and Daniel's yeah, on the other no, side. Daniel just kidding. That's a joke. We'll see him on this channel insanely soon. So. Uh, uh, and and with ridiculous frequency. So uh, so I'll see you soon, Daniel. I did just want to say, uh, um, uh, Katie, uh, that uh, that I I think uh, I mean I think the second point is is absolutely right. Like like I had lots of I had lots of problems with you know with Bernie on foreign policy, especially the first time he ran. In fact, that was my biggest hesitation about uh, supporting him. You know because the mixed record there, but also like. You know, there is a pretty stark difference between Hillary Clinton saying in the debate stage that Henry Kissinger was her best friend and yeah. uh, and and Bernie responding to that by bringing up the coup against Allende. Uh, so so I, I think that's pretty stark. And I, and I think on the first point, the distinction that I would make is is that I don't think that you're necessarily wrong in thinking, OK, we're living in unprecedented times. This stuff is all incredibly unpredictable. Who knows what could happen to different areas? I think that's all absolutely right. So I, I think it is probably like locally true for some areas that, you know, that Biden might, you know, shift, you know, and, and defy expectations in certain ways. But I think that overall, and we're going to have uh, crystal ball on next week and get into much more of the domestic policy stuff then, you know, but like overall, I think anywhere where there's a decision that we would want that would really put him into conflict with, with capital, you know, domestically, or really with the, uh, the um, you know, the military industrial complex, you know, uh, Rob, like he's just not, 
I think it's I think it's relatively unrealistic to think that those are those are goals that can be accomplished through pressuring the Biden administration. Whether the vision of pressuring him is sort of politely lobbying behind the scenes or whether it's something more outsidery and confrontational, I think that Biden's at some really basic level Biden's going to Biden. And so, the, yeah, so, unless his life is made. I mean, again, it's not because I think he's going to be. But it's not. Yeah. I mean, I think that also wouldn't you have said that, like, if someone had said Bernie Sanders is going to be a national contender, uh, wouldn't you have been like, eh, nice idea? No, no, I would have thought that was crazy. I mean, I actually just right. watched, I actually just rewatched like last week to write something for Jacobin, uh, the, uh, the footage of uh, Bernie Sanders announcing for president the first time in 2015. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, there's, he's talking to a handful of reporters. There are no like civilians there. And he literally takes a speech. Like a, he has a speech on a piece of paper that was folded up in his pocket. And so he takes it out of his pocket. The first thing he tells them is that he'll take a couple questions, but I don't have an endless amount of time. You know, I got to get back inside. He's on like his lunch break or something. And, And just the gap between that and what happened later is insane. So I think there are these these openings that will exist for the left that you can't see coming in advance. I think that's totally true. But what I think, and maybe I'll be proven wrong in this, but what I think is that, you know, we can't predict like when those openings are going to come, but I think those openings are going to be about like beating centrists uh, rather rather than about like- And dragging centrists somehow dragging them to the left and getting them to do left-wing things. Cause I think that, I think that past a certain sort of uh, past a certain point, like uh, I, I mean, I think even, even forget the Bernie program, even just to fulfill all the stuff that he said he would do when he was running for president, I think that he would have to confront the the donor class in a way that I just have a hard time imagining him doing. Right. Mm-hmm. And Ronnie, can I just I know this is your show, Ben, it's been going on for a while. I just you were saying something about the imperialism question and like overly vilifying them uh, in response to what I said. Uh, I don't even remember. You know, I was like, sometimes our fellow like anti-imperialist leftists can be overly dismissive of the difference between like a squad member or Bernie Sanders and oh, yeah, a centrist yeah. um, and I think it's to our detriment. Yeah, I think it's, uh, oh, what I was saying is I think even Biden and Republicans are different. Like, I don't think it's right to suggest they're all the same. They're not. There are totally nuances. Like, I I think it's really important. You know, people got mad at me for this, but I think it's important that Biden's president and not Trump. I don't think that should be a controversial thing to say, but I actually think like there's there's going to be people who are still going to suffer, obviously, because the U.S. foreign policy sucks. But there's definitely going to be slightly less. Like Biden probably it will does matter whether we go to war with Iran, right? Like he'll probably wind down right. support for the war in Yemen. That's like a big deal. Yeah, um, we're not going to have a war with Iran. I hope there's less likelihood of that. That's right. a big deal. Um, and I'm like, per- I mean, I live in this region, so like yeah. I'm personally affected by that. I, I like the consequences of those things really do affect me in a way where I can feel it. Right? Yeah. Even the government in Lebanon like waited. Like, like waited to decide what it was going to do next based on who won yeah. the presidency because that it does make a difference. They know what makes the difference, right? So, um, yeah. so yeah. So if even Biden and Trump is a difference, however slight, there's even there's like it's like a whole planet of a difference between squad members and a Biden. That doesn't mean I don't think that doesn't mean I think we should just be like uncritically supportive. No, of the squad. Right. I have a lot but of I, issues with them, but right, like I don't think it's right to 
to attack them in a way that would alienate them rather than actually try and influence them because those are people that you could actually have influence yeah, are, over. Those, yeah, those are people you could influence. Right, right, and, right exactly. And, 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 and I think that's the that's the distinction. I mean, uh, it's the, you know, hate to bring, like, after all the anti-Semitism we already had, you know, to, uh, to, to bring up Carl Schmidt, but, you know, that, like, friend-enemy oh. distinction is... Right. Um, like, like is, is crucial. And, and to say, I think it's, yeah, it's a mistake to, uh, to treat enemies as a friend and friends. It's also a mistake to treat friends as enemies. Uh, and that's, and that's not to say that, you know, you, that people, obviously all politicians. Right. Or yeah. I yeah. look at Rand Paul who has better war record, is better on war than Tony Blinken. And he was like the most critical person in the entire, uh, questioning of, of, uh, Blinken, who was actually, anti-war which is a, yeah, Rand Paul's a useful Rand Paul's a useful person on certain issues yeah. I mean, he is like a senator too so he's that. terrible no, and he's racist and we all know that sorry there i go right. again off the, <laughs> that really my head really really paper, so. yeah i guess i guess i guess a, a counterpoint though i mean a slight one is that i mean i think that there is a way to pressure people either in the squad or bernie or whoever it is because um on foreign policy issues specifically because in 2016 Bernie was pressured really hard by Palestinian rights activists who refused to support and, and, he, and he totally moved because that's the thing. And, I mean, yeah. And Bernie, I mean, with Bernie, it's a no I'm not saying don't, I'm not saying don't, they right, should right. be criticized, and but push, I'm just yeah. saying it should be recognized that these people can be moved. Yeah. It shouldn't be just like throw them away and treat them like they're neocons. Yeah, I'm not, I think there's, there's a way to criticize them. There's a way to criticize them, and then there's a way there's to. There's also group. Well, I'm there's not also, even talking about that as much of like, I think like the, okay, there's like an obviously there's a uh, su, uh, on what is it subtext a force of vote subtext, but like putting that aside and and our discourse around the squad, I mean more like I think people just think like someone's not anti-imperialist enough, so fuck that. And it's like no, there are people who first of all people will respond to pressure, but on this issue in particular, like people are with us when it comes to like Ilan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Bernie Sanders, um, uh, I think Cori Bush, like these are people who are already with us. I think, on I a, think what you're talking old, about, Katie, yeah. is it yeah. has a lot to do with like this kind of, um, this kind of like acceptance of being powerless. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's that's, like, that's it's exactly you're so it. used to being, to having zero influence and power. And as individuals, like people don't actually have power. It's more like, like with what, with what you brought up Forrest about Palestine, uh, if Bernie being moved on Palestine back in 2016, that didn't just happen because people yelled on Twitter. That right. also, that actually mostly happened because of Palestine solidarity organizations that were connected to people inside the Bernie Sanders movement. Yeah. And people like Cornell West made a difference there too, right? Like he was a surrogate. People around Bernie Sanders like helped move him on that issue. And so I think that that was like one of these rare moments where people were like, wait, what? We can move a politician? And there's still, because of like the left never having any power, there's this automatic sort of like resorting to online outrage because you almost don't realize that like actually these people, if you're in an organized group, well, maybe listen to you because you're their base. They're not funded by corporate donors. Yeah. And it's, yeah. So, so, so obviously I'm glad that, uh, I'm glad that Katie uh, brought up force the vote because when I, when I pretended I was, I want to have you on to talk about foreign policy. My agenda was that I was hoping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
like six. No, I just feel like that's obviously, you know, but we're talking about discourse. But uh, yeah. if at all possible, I'd, I'd, I'd like this to be entirely about that, actually. Yeah. Every subsequent episode. No, but I guess uh, I just, I feel. But, 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 but no, I, I, mean, I mean, I do agree, right? So, that, so like, I think we can make a distinction and say, of course, all politicians should be criticized. Uh, no question. Uh, but the, but, I think one, I think Forrest is right. You criticize them in different ways. And two, I think that uh, I think that just in terms of what Ronnie is talking about, that like some people have pol have like parameters, their politics that are defined by what the donors will let them get away with. And right. some people don't. And, and the people that don't are going to be pressurable in ways that the ones, the ones who aren't, you know, who, who do have those parameters Aren't, aren't going to be. So I, I think that the the danger, I think the analytic mistake that people make is just saying, okay, do you check these boxes? Do you have the right positions on these? No, therefore, you know, screw you, which which I think which I think then leads them to to miss things that would actually matter if you care about uh if you like if you care about changing the actual, you know, the actual policy positions. And Kong, yeah. I mean, that's what I guess this, my thing is like more particular about like how people with whom I agree on foreign policy, I think like we need to be, we can't just dismiss these people. I don't care if you think they're sellouts. I don't care if you think they're insufficiently anti-imperialist. Like, you know, on some level that voting against sanctions makes a huge difference. Like, you know, that these are things and Rania, this is kind of why I wanted to bring this up with you because you're someone who lives the effects of these things. And it's like, I'm not like romanticizing at all. Like, I, I think people probably know that I'm pretty critical of US foreign policy. And uh, I just think that there is a hopelessness that can actually be like result in letting the bad guys win. Like yeah. there is work to be done. I don't really care what you think about these people. Like there are is work to be done around foreign policy issues. And it's really important to do that. And again, I don't, you don't have to, I, this isn't even about the discourse you use, although that is a strategic question too, because there is obviously when there's too much discourse in one direction, I think it can bite you in the ass and alienate people and cause people to, um, what's the word, uh, like bunker mentality, protect and defend. Mm. But what I'm just saying is that this is really more towards like the people with whom I usually agree, which is that we can't abandon foreign policy fights because we don't think people are legitimately well, yourself, you do that you're taking yourself out of the equation too like yeah. you're 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 choosing to voluntarily remove yourself from being able to have any influence yeah. and you don't even uh, have to you're somebody with a platform yeah because no one's going to listen to you if you're just yelling at them and calling them names and i guess i can see the parallel with force the vote um because that that kind of like it started to become like that. But I think again, like I think that reaction from people also has to do with a kind of learned helplessness. It's oh, like it's, a, and it's totally understandable. And there's an outrage. And I think that like some it's like if you're more ang if you're angrier at people who are outraged, uh, and I'm talking about like random people, not 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 people who are, you know, because everyone makes this a referendum on a few people, but like if you're angrier at people for being outraged than you are about the things they're outraged about, that's not you know, you may want to check your priorities. No, I, 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 think, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, although the flip side of that is that, I mean, obviously that's right about priorities, but, uh, but I think the flip side is that not all forms of outrage are helpful uh, in, in actually like, move, you know, in actually accomplishing the things that we, uh, that we care about, you know, as uh, you know, whether, you know, whether it's achieving, you know, Medicare for all or winding down American empire uh, or yeah. uh, or any you know or any of the rest of that, 
uh, you know, like like and and I think that that learned helplessness, you know, that uh, that Ronnie was talking about earlier, is like at the heart of of a lot of this stuff because. Uh, I mean, I think a lot of the pathologies of, of the U.S. left are just a function of the fact that it's been so long. I mean, really never, right, you know, that we've had anything like real power, but like it's it's been so long since we even had like the the hope of it uh, that that I think a lot of people get really used to sort of seeing that what it is to be on the left as this sort of purely like symbolic, like registering your dissent against all yeah. the horrible shit that's going on. Uh, which is, you know, totally understandable if you're thinking about like, you know, I mean, most of the time that like, you know, like, like uh, that most of the time, you know, that, that most like leftists, you know, probably, you know, have, uh, well, I guess not now because, you know, most leftists are only, you know, have only been leftists for five years, but, you know, old people like me, you know, that like most of the time, you know, have been alive, there was never any point where it felt like there was any hope of, of, of achieving real world power. But the danger of that is that if you see it as purely a matter of like having a kind of symbolic protest, you yeah. know, showing people that you're on the right side, then, uh, and it, it's just kind of performing, you know, performing your outrage, uh, then that can like be really, that can be really counterproductive when there actually are any kind of openings to, uh, you know, to do, to do anything in the real world, especially because if you see politics as purely about exhibiting your outrage and, and exhibiting your moral commitment, you know, to, uh, to a better world, then it's really easy to fall into spending all of your time interrogating other people's commitment. And, you know, I, yeah, I think that said, I do think that every, I do think that people have different roles to play. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And there's and a so radical flank and an angry say, flank too. I don't want to say that. there shouldn't be any outrage. Like, cause I remember, no, that there I, be, I don't think you're not. saying that at all. I just, I think I want to like be clear that I, I personally do think that it's useful to have those people that that cer those certain people who do that because mm. that pressure that sort of public yes, ridiculing kind of pressure does play a useful role that is important and i'll give an example i mean forrest gave an example of the palestine issue and it's a really good example of like a multifaceted approach yeah. where you have this sort of like online outrage and figures like and i actually played a role in that you know i was working at the electronic intifada back then and i like wrote several articles about Bernie Sanders' history with Palestine, and they were quite nuanced. But I mean, I wasn't nice about it. Right. Um, and I think I've seen, you know, Ali Abunima, who's in charge of the Electronic Intifada, has continued to do that with Rashida Tlaib. Like, and it's continued to push her on the issue right. of he didn't initially endorse BDS. Like, she was pressured to by people, both inside the sort of like bat, you know, like the the Palestine solidarity community that like plays that influential role as like, you know, pressure groups, but also from the public outrage. So I think that those two things can I work agree. in concert together, but it shouldn't just be the public outrage because that is not effective and it's not a good strategy because ultimately like you're, if that's all you're doing, then you will alienate people who otherwise could actually be brought out. over. Right. That's, I think, yeah, I think that's like the fine line, but I do agree with you that like there is a, you know, the Overton window does shift and like having a radical flank, both like politically radical, but also almost like, like, uh, you know, behaviorally uh, or just an, an angry flank can be productive because then you get to point to people and you're like, I can't, I'm not doing that, but look at, look at what people are doing over there. That's why we have to give them something. Uh, right. I think, I think also when it comes to um, foreign policy, it's not just pushing. I mean, it, definitely pushing is part of it, but 
you know, squad members and Bernie and whoever else is a progressive leader has to know that people actually care about these issues deeply because, yeah. you know, I think it's really easy to push domestic issues and say like, oh, Medicare for all, you know, people want health care. You yeah. know what I mean? Like free college or free, right. you know, uh, public colleges like that would really help a lot of people. I think I think, you know, progressive leaders have to know that there are people that have their back on some of these anti-imperialist issues because yeah, it's it's hard to take that line if you're like, well, you know, I feel this way, but I don't know, if, you know, people that I that I'm going to have. Yeah. A which is why about. I think like linking the foreign policy stuff to the domestic is so important. Although yeah. for me, I mean, it's not probably not hard to imagine that like that's not pr primarily why I care about it. But that's certainly like if you want to meet people no, where they're at. That is like but one it, of the most useful rhetorical, teachable yeah, things. Yeah, want to get ordinary Americans to, to care about it, it's certainly one yeah. of the most effective. Uh, yeah, effective also those ways. outrage people, those outrage people, like now I'm becoming pro-outrage, but those outrage people do also create space. That's what I'm the saying. They drown it. The crazier they sound, yes. the more calm, like you it's sound. The thing. Yeah, but so behavior I'm, radically. I'm, I'm, I'm pro-outrage, but what <laughs> I would say is that I'm pro well-targeted outrage. I think that yeah. there are, I think there are productive forms of outrage and there I think there are unproductive forms of outrage. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the, uh, that's the distinction that I'd make, but I'm going to, uh, going to uh, bring on our, uh, our good friend, uh, David Griscom uh, for, uh, for the next segment. Uh, meanwhile, uh, thank you so much. Uh, yeah. to, uh, uh, Rania Kalik, who's the uh, GTAA, has recognized as the interim president of Lebanon. Congratulations. Yeah, Rania, when can you do my show again? I thought you were off. I thought you were off. off uh, what's the expression? Anyway, I'll talk to you. Rania, go on, D go on Twitter. I want to DM you. Okay, okay. We'll talk on Twitter. It was such a yeah. pleasure to be on. Thanks, guys. I'll, be, I'll keep All watching. Right. Don't worry, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Farah. Thank you so much, Rania. Thank you, Brady. I'll see you very soon on your show. And uh, always a pleasure. Yeah, 7 p.m. Wednesday, uh, Thursdays and Sundays. We move to Thursdays now. Thursdays and Sundays. Oh, I have to tell you that. I didn't update you. Okay, bye, guys. Right. See ya. What's up, y'all? What's going on? I love, I love the mountain, uh, the mountain decal behind you. Thanks so much. Yeah. I have this. I have this less, this more primitive mountain. I don't know. <laughs> It's the East Coast versus the West Coast. They're on it, man. <laughs> nice. Uh, so, uh, so you're back in Portland right now? Uh, no, no, I'm uh, I'm back in New York, packing things up on the way back to uh, to Austin. Oh, oh, okay. So you are ready to go to Austin now? All right. I was, I've uh, I've yeah. I'm in, I'm in. No, I'm back in. I'm in New York City. No, no, no. You're in New York, but you're you're about to be in Austin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, cool. Yeah. He's in no. JFK right now. Can't you see the, the, <laughs> the big I'm in, I'm in flight. I'm in flight. <laughs> nice. Uh so talk about the highwaymen this week. Yeah, man. I mean, for folks who are listening to this and they're not familiar, I mean there really isn't much to say about the Highwaymen other than it's Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, and Chris Christopherson. Um, you know, I, I was waiting to talk about them as like a collective until we had gone through all four of those guys. But I mean, the the Highwaymen is probably one of the few examples of a supergroup really, really hitting out of the park. 
Um, they're a lot of fun. That's a good one, especially if you're not very familiar with country music and the outlaw movement. If you just want to type in the highwaymen into YouTube and just let the, the shuffle take you where it will, it's just going to move you from highway highwaymen performing uh, their original songs or, you know, covers of one of the guys jams all together, or just, you know, to a nice clip of, uh, you know, Willie Nelson who or, or whomever, um, fun as hell. Obviously their most famous song is the highwayman, which I don't know if you have, if you had heard before Ben. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I actually, I realized that I had, yeah, for sure. But that's like a pure, like it's a fun ass song, um, but it's also it has a very '80s vibe to it. Uh, the music video is hilarious, just like uh, <laughs> scenes of of people all throughout history, and then you just see like Willie Nelson's like face pop up in the horizon. Um, but the highway, the highwayman song is honestly, it's one of my personal favorites of all time, um, just because. A lot of, especially like the outlaw movement, was sort of recognizing that things were changing and there was a certain kind of American story that was disappearing and trying to to pay witness to that. But I like the Highway Men song a lot because it sort of takes us through um, history of all these kind of people who embody the spirit. So, you know, the first one is like the Highwaymen who used to, you know, rob uh, coaches with their sword and pistol by their side. Um, and then they go on to the sailors who are, you know, conquering the seas. Um, but then, you know, Waylon Jennings brings in the, uh, the dam builder. Right. right. And like that, that it's just an interesting, uh, you know, contribution to that story. It's like, this is like so much more than just like one particular moment, but like a kind of way of being, um, and you know, it's very somber, it's reflective and it's remembering. Um, but I don't know, maybe I'm goofy and too sentimental, but I love the, the last verse of the song, which is, uh, Johnny Cash jumping in and talking about, uh, you know, he'll fly a starship. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's like he's like he's he's in the future and he's talking about being a <laughs> so I don't know, some kind of space pirate or something, uh, you know, flying across across the universe. And I think it's it's a really beautiful, beautiful song for that. And um, I also have to say, if it's if it's all right, not too sentimental, yeah. but uh, that last verse in particular, uh, it does make me, you know, think of think of our friend Michael a lot, particularly the last line. Um I've sort of dedicated this to this bit to him in my, you know, my hard hearts. Um, I'll fly a starship across the universe divide. And when I reach the other side, I'll find a place to rest my spirit. If I can, perhaps I may become a highwayman again, or I may simple be a simple drop of rain, but I will be, remain and I'll be back again and again and again and again. And to me, you know, I just found that it's just such a beautiful, a beautiful line. And I think, the more backwards looking aspects of country music and those characters, I think um, is represented better if you understand it in its forward looking way too, which is just like recognizing these really beautiful and interesting stories and people who, you know, made our history what it, what it was, um, but also sort of recognizing that as actually almost like a universal quality of, of humanity, um, which I yeah. think is really sweet. Yeah, you can be, I mean, Jesus, I mean, if, if you can ever be sentimental, it's on the uh, drinking whiskey and talking about country music segment at the end. Of no, the that's show. definitely true. I know I've been on a whole thing today, um, I must say. But yeah, no, it's a beautiful, I mean, it's like their music's really good. I really like American Remains, which is honestly uh, from their second major album that they came out together. Um, very similar line about sort of going through all these different characters, a shotgun rider on the San Jacinto line. 
um, a river gambler who gets caught uh, cheating. Um, but I like this line because I know this is a big part of our uh, of the of this segment, though, is like being sentimental, but also recognizing this kind of radical heritage that we have here. Uh, Willie Nelson sings this this verse, which I really love. Um, I'm a Midwest farmer. I make my living off the land. I re ride a John Deere tractor. I'm a liberated man. But the rain hasn't fallen since the middle of July, and soon my crops will die. The bank man says he likes me, but there's nothing he can do. He tells me that he's coming, but the clouds are coming too. He ain't my friend. I'll ride again, right? And I feel like that's good, uh, you know, good kind of class consciousness there as well. That is good. Um, yeah, there's, I mean, what else? There's, I mean, there's so many good songs. There's Welfare Line, which is a good song on their first album too, uh, you know, about sort of being down and out. Um, you know, I fought for my country, which, which, um, which, which is funny, by the way, I have to say, uh, that, you know, reminds me of, um, the, uh, as, as, as much as it's, it's like kind of defiling the, uh, the segment to even bring this up here, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, what I would probably be, uh, my, my nomination for the most evil country song ever recorded is that, uh, that, uh, Hank, uh, Hank Williams thing about McCain, uh, oh yeah yeah that, which which actually has you know i was thinking about that when you had the line about the farmers and the banks you know because there's actually that song actually has lyrics in defense of bankers you know that like the government was making them do those loads i know oh yeah you're right i mean that's all honestly that hank williams jr song and honestly like we have to do a hank williams jr episode one time because i will say like hank williams jr is like one of like my problematic faves like i love some of his songs like i even love some of his like 2000 stuff like country boy can survive um oh, no I, yeah country boy can survive is great like i, I mean the uh uh, you know, I mean, Jesus, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, obviously I love uh, whiskey events and hellbound, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, OD'd in Denver, yeah, like, no, he has some great songs, but just like honestly, just politically, absolutely, more. I mean, oh. that's what happens when you get super rich, too. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm sorry, it, it really is, I mean, but not that he really grew up, you know, without sort of having a place in the world, being the son of like one of the greatest and most famous country singers of all time. Uh, I'm sure it's hard following your daddy's footsteps, but it's a little bit of a different struggle than most of us have, I must say. But <laughs> um, yeah, no, no, like it's it is such like a night and day shift uh, listening to these these highwaymen songs, and you know, there's no doubt about it that that comes from Willie. Um, no doubt about it, it comes from Johnny Cash and Chris, and also, uh, yeah. I could probably feel old all day long, catch catfish from dust till dawn. Like that's a good line. That's a, that's Hank Williams Jr. Um, but uh, um, the, you know, the welfare songs really is like really good, especially doing that. Like in 1985, when that was such a hotbed issue, you know, saying like, I fought for my country. Lord knows I did my best. I crawled through some foreign field. They pin a ribbon to my chest. And then they just sort of is talking about pass the bottle around boys. Let's talk about the old times. Nights rolling in. It's cold as sin here on the welfare line. Right. And it's just like all these people who've done a lot in their life, live a pretty full lives and uh, you know, they're down and out and they need a little help. Um, I think that's a really beautiful one. Another one too, if you watch these like old concerts, living legend, um, which is a song on the first highwayman album, or maybe not highwayman too. I might be wrong about that. Anyways, uh, Chris Christopherson like opens it up and says like this song could have been written by Jesus Christ or Che Guevara, you know, those kind of revolutionaries. And it's just like, that's that lefty shit that we were talking about yeah, last yeah. week. 
um yeah man uh you know other jams like there ain't no good chain gang is one of my personal favorites uh that you can listen to them i guess and i i just have to um to you know just throw in just because it's always good to tell these like little stories is that um when johnny cash and waylon jennings johnny cash is a few years older than waylon but uh, johnny apparently was like a real chef they were all roommates together in nashville before they made it big and johnny cash was like a really like kind of like grandma to all these guys uh was making them biscuits and gravy and fried chicken and it's always covered in uh covered in flour <laughs> like cooking up a store for these guys uh which is just fun to watch them as they're like you know older and just extremely successful and legends just realizing that you know there was a time these guys were just like 20 years old just like getting drunk together johnny cash making sure everybody's having enough food um yeah no i i can no i i, I mad i can just imagine it's like uh like yeah i mean there are many many nights you know that uh, all the nights of my life when you know, had the like the sort of like drunk snack you know at the uh, at, at the end of the night but yeah it, imagine it, that was johnny cash bringing you some biscuits man <laughs> <laughs> no it's so good and like i was i was actually watching some of uh the highway men's like just videos on youtube before i, I came on here and it was so funny just sitting there looking at them all like smiling having a good time together and remembering the story I told you uh, last week about uh, Chris Christopherson, about how he was so desperate to get Johnny Cash to just listen to his music that he flew a helicopter onto Johnny Cash's like front lawn to get his attention. And then, you know, 25 years later, they're like on a, you know, on a big stage together, like one of the most successful super groups of all time. It's very funny. Uh, stuff of legends. Yeah. Uh, on, uh, unrelated but since uh since you had me you know which by the way uh, that's that's gonna be in my head for a long time i think that that association with michael and that like that uh you know mm -hmm. of the uh the highway men but said and somebody uh brought it in the chat i'll bring back the gulag uh, segment from tmba <laughs> <laughs> those are so fun no, um, those are fun or the pyramid that's the real throwback the throwback yeah, early right. days the pyramid man the best, the best gulag segment you guys did was when you did like the rapid fire, like everybody in the gulag one. Yeah, yeah, that was, that was, that was, I think it was the first one I was on for. It was the uh, it was the one uh, about everybody. It was about uh, Ilhan the Ilhan Omar, you know, anti-Semitism controversy, and so yeah. we did it as a mass trial. Uh, you know, to like like we had like a, yeah, I think we condemned like you know, you know, a couple hundred people to the gulag over the course of that segment. Yeah, but just like in in proper soviet tradition there were mistakes like, I, I can't remember who I, like, I threw a couple people in just in the rapid fire section uh forgetting people's names and throwing in innocence <laughs> i think i think also it was like everybody at the new york times was one of them like <laughs> yeah it was a good time man those are those no, are that's right. That's right. That's, yeah everybody at the new york times yeah they, they, they little, like was it there was some kind of like chord you know that like it was played every time you know that they uh you know that we sentenced somebody new to you know which i remember actually it was before that episode where i was on but it was but i remember michael you know making a comment at some point in there uh and obviously his his uh you know his softy side it's not surprising that he eventually phased that out you know but uh, the, uh but i remember him making a comment that like got us you know, in that, trouble with bernie's team honestly that's why we stopped doing it <laughs> There were three. They were like, we can't get Bernie on if you don't stop doing the gulag. And, uh... 
yeah, fair enough. Um, although, uh, yeah, and you know, whatever. I mean, he was uh, like, like he was, uh, you know, he was very, you know, I, I think he knew when to, you know, pragmatically roll with something and when to when to mm-hmm. draw a line principle. So, like, you know, he did. You know, I mean, he wrote that. Uh, you know, he wrote that article with with Gene uh, about uh, you know Ilhan Omar's um, uh, you know bad vote on on the um, on the Armenia you know genocide thing. You know, even knowing that that was you know potentially burning a bridge. Uh, but uh, but you know, I mean, a, a joke about the Gulag, you know, wasn't going to be a live principle. So mm-hmm. fair enough. But yeah, I do remember when he still had it though. Him, him making a really good comment on one of those episodes about how. Like there are three kinds of people listening, uh, who like they're the they're the people who are like, uh, you know, who are like demented tankies who are like, you know, oh yeah, no, that's great, just like we really will someday, you know, and then like they're the people who are who are like, oh my god, I can't believe they would joke about that. That's terrible. Yeah. And then there are the people who just kind of take it in the spirit that's intended, in, uh, which uh, which is exactly have fun. No, exactly. Yeah. It was good times. Yeah. Seriously. No, those were such good. I mean, those were, I mean, those are some of my, like, you know, I, I don't, you know, I want to make this a whole about that, but I mean, those, those, those are, I think going to be like, um, you know, when I'm much older, you know, is uh, making biscuits and gravy for the young podcasters. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm I'm still like those are those are still gonna be some of my my very very favorite memories. You know, of uh, actually, I could probably just end the sentence there, but uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, no, that's that's no no question. So um, so people who want to uh, who want to get into uh, you know get into the highwayman who haven't listened to much of that stuff, you know, what's what a good uh, you know where should they start? I mean, you know, start with the with the OG song man, the highwayman. Uh, you know, self-titled, self-titled jams, a good time. Um, you know, it's it's a super group. So the Highwaymen is their first and, and most famous album. Highwaymen 2 is pretty good. They got Silver Stallion on that, which is a great jam. Um, you got, uh, what else? I mean, American Remains is one of my favorite of all. T- I mean, like, I think the Highwaymen, like, main song is probably my favorite of all time. But I've I've listened to it so much that, uh, I've been really feeling American Remains, which honestly has like the sa- a very similar kind of um, musically. It sounds very similar, but that's a really great song. And yeah, man, just type in Highwaymen into YouTube, and you're gonna be you're gonna be treated with something nice with that. I promise you. Nice. All right. Thanks, brother. Always really enjoy this. Yeah, of course, man. Take care, y'all. Take. Care. All right. Peace out. All right, so uh, we are going to, uh, if people have any more uh, Super Chat questions that uh, that they want Forrest and I to, uh, to answer, we will do that at the end. Uh, first, though, I want to uh, to play a, uh, a little teaser uh, for the, uh, the Thursday patron episode this week, uh, which is... Uh, is Daniel Bessner and uh, Amber Lee Frost uh, talking about their uh, Jacobin article delving into uh, the mysteries of lunacy of QAnon. Uh, so, so let's get into that. Since uh, after uh, whatever whatever you want to call what happened on uh, on January sixth, uh, you know, in, in the article that you and I wrote, Daniel, you know, we had a whole thing about why you know we don't think it's it's right to call it. 
uh, to call it a, key, a coup, right? You know, riot, insurrection, whatever, you know. Uh, but after, after that, uh, one of the things that you point out is that even though probably, you know, if you count up the word QAnon as it's used in news coverage, you'll, you know, you find tons of instances of nothing else. The, you know, the Q shaman, you know, was the big image that everybody remembered uh, from, uh, from the storming of the Capitol. Uh, what's that? Not a look. Yeah. Guy, fit guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's always gonna get in America. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I think he, uh, I think, I think if he ever gets out of prison, I, th I think he's, I think he could parlay this into, um, you know, into some media stuff. You know, like his, his image has been out there a lot. You know, he, uh, you know, he looked good. It was fun. He's got, you know? he's got a very strong brand. Very strong brand. He's the ultimate influencer, some might say. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, but despite all of that, right, despite all of the coverage, you know, of the, um, you know, the Q shaman, uh, they're like most of the descriptions in the media of the uh, riot on the 6th sort of talked in general terms about it being, you know, being Trump supporters in uh, in ways that uh, that don't make a lot of distinctions, you know, be between different groups. Uh, within it, and but of course the the massive disproportionate group of people who were at the Capitol were people who uh, who believe in uh, in QAnon, which is a, which is pretty um, as you guys talk about it's a, it's a pretty heterogeneous group in itself, uh, but it, it, it's also it's also a very specific thing, right? You know there are, there are something like seventy million people who voted for Donald Trump. Uh, there are not, I hope, uh, 70 million people who, who believe in the, um, the cabal of satanic pedophiles that, like, all Democrats and most Republicans are part of. It's, I mean, okay, I actually would push back on that. Okay. One is that now I think the media has since corrected, and I'm like, oh, this is a shit ton of few people. Initially, they uh, did anything they possibly could to keep from getting any kind of democracy of crowds because... I mean, that's not as good television as being, like, mortified, I guess. Mm. Uh, and then, two, um, they're not a specific group. You mentioned that they're heterogeneous, but uh, they're distinct without being mm. specific, which is a very – well, it's a distinction, I guess. <laughs> with <laughs> but, a difference. Yeah, it's a distinction with a difference. Um, I mean, like, we bring up the sort of variety of people who are sort of, like, into Q, but mm. – we didn't want to get stuck in the weeds with how many people thought favorably of QAnon, um, especially because initial polling is sort of vague enough to where you don't get a very good sense of it. Like, uh, you know, people are, are you, are you approving of QAnon is sometimes the, 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 the question that they ask people or how do you feel about QAnon and people will be like, yeah. And it's like, you don't know if they mean Epstein or lizard people or, you know, stop steal. Like it's, mm. it's not only is it impossible to get like a full ranging, like sort of ethnography on these people, never mind like, you know, demographic information, like the levels of faith and mm. the areas of like adoption are also totally unclear. And, and also just to build on that, I think what we were trying to get out a little bit the the article is exactly what Amber just said is that it's, it's almost a sensibility, right? It, it, as opposed to a particular, like, you're not going to really have the QAnon checklist to determine mm. whether 
or someone like QAnon. Like you can with fascism, right? If they do eight, these eight things, it's fascism. You can't write really with Q, uh, you can't really quite do that with QAnon because it's really more of a sensibility. Um, uh, certainly, I, I would say a right wing sensibility that's organized around like a, a lot of right wing tropes that have dominated, that have basically ebbed and flowed in the last two centuries. Um, you know, you get some elders of Zion in there, you get some more recent uh, racist types of tropes. Um, but it's really more the sort of like the way we described it, I think, was apt an anti establishment, but nonetheless authoritarian sensibility mm. um, is really uh, what unites a lot of these very disparate um, sectors of this broader Q phenomenon. Kill the elites, put Trump on the throne kind of thing. It's very, uh, yeah. Exactly. I, I, which I think speaks to the limits of their imagination and the kind of delusion that goes along with it is that they can't even imagine a world without elites. What they can only hope for is like, you know, this figure of Donald Trump. Yeah, I mean, what, I think I thought one of the most uh, striking comparisons in the article uh, you talked about uh, Aaron Dorkin's movie, The uh, Trial of the Chicago Seven, uh, where he puts into Abby Hoffman's mouth uh, the line, some line like, I think the institutions of this country are great right now. They just happen to be populated uh, by, by terrible people, uh, which, of course, isn't something Hoffman would say, but it's a very pure distillation of, of Sorkin-esque liberalism. And the weird way, as you point out, this is also what Q, you know, like what the Q crowd broadly believes. The ideology is so strong that, like, it still thrives among a population of people who have essentially been living through a kind of mass psychotic break, like a mass break with reality. Like, the ideology of America is good, and uh, America functions well when uh, under the proper operator. That is so intense in America that uh, people who believe like in lizard people and that Sandy Hook was fake still believe it. It's like a, to me, I understand it as an extension of, of Fisher's capitalist realism, whatever you want to call it. There's an American realism, there's a yeah. constitutional realism, whatever it may be. They can't even imagine another structure. Um, which I think is it's part of that lack of imagination, which has a million different causes that sort of um, force the, the like this sincere derangement of the particular form that the break took. And it's just not surprising that QAnon has really exploded during COVID, right? This extreme situation, um, which almost begs for a structural solution. Uh, people who can't abide that for whatever reason have embraced this series of conspiracy theories. Well, Plots just on a much more mundane level. Uh, so many people are spending so much time alone with the internet. Yeah, we were uh, trolling the boards, um, not trolling in the, <laughs> you know, fucking with people, which is also why we did put links to any of these groups on here. I didn't want anyone to mess with these people, but looking at the boards of people who were ex-QAnon and who had lost, lost family to QAnon, I mean, like, it's a really extended kind of world. Um, like a lot of, I, I saw a lot of people say, I had never heard of QAnon until the lockdown. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, well, that's a perfect storm, clearly. Right, because you could also think about it, like what is the opposition to QAnon offering? Joe Biden's offering return to normalcy, right? right. And so if the normal wasn't that good, or if you had problems with the normal, where are you gonna go? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, uh, I think there's obviously, as time goes on, we'll be able to look at these things with clearer eyes, but I think, that's one of the major reasons that QAnon has exploded. You have this extreme situation and really nowhere with these energies to go. Um, yeah.
Yeah, so that uh, so that episode uh, is uh, is dropping on uh, Thursday for uh, for patrons, uh, and uh, I would uh, and and everybody should read uh, their uh, their article. Uh, you know, in uh, in Jacobin, which is very good. It's it's like a very um, like it's it's a really nuanced like like take on on what's going on you know how why we have this like super insane conspiracy theory that's that suddenly become so popular uh they they go into a lot of stuff in there about how um like you know what to do if you have like a loved one who's fallen into this and 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 like what you can say that's not just going to you know, convince them that like you're part of the conspiracy and, uh, and push you even further away. Uh, they uh, they talk, you know, like like one of the things that you know. I mean, we talk about all this in the interview, but one of the things that I found like um, like really striking that they mentioned in their article is that one of the most popular Q conspiracy theories is that uh, Donald Trump was going to forgive every Amer- American's medical debt. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 insane. It, um, yeah, yeah, it's insane, but it's so fucking revealing. Like that. That's yeah. yeah. No, a lot of it's it's struggling people. I mean, you know, a, a lot of them. You know what I mean? With with, and I, I think that there's a certain. I mean, there's a certain irony to QAnon's existence in that they think that Donald Trump was going to be the one. Yeah, yeah, Donald to, Trump of all people. Yeah, who has never had a passive thought in his entire life for the welfare of another, maybe his daughter, certainly not his sons, yeah. but like, you know, maybe not even his daughter, like that, you know, that he is probably incapable of uh, like, like in a literal, like psychiatric sense, incapable of, of experiencing empathy for other people that like, that yeah. he's the guy who's going to do all this for them. But that's the thing. Like, I mean, whatever, it's a very basic kind of leftist point, but if you can't actually imagine, I mean, this again goes back to Fisher and capitalist realism. If you can't, if it's just outside of your scope of your imagination that you could have some sort of political movement that could that could uh, make change for the grassroots, that could achieve something like universal medical debt cancellation. Yeah. Uh, like you, you can't have to rely, you have to rely on a savior that's going to come in and, and, and take care of that. I think there's also, I, I think Amber made this point in the, in, in the interview and maybe in the article I've, I saw, I read, I read like half of it the other night when I was um, doing this and then I just kind of got distracted doing other things because I've been so busy with everything, but um, it's kind of the depoliticiz- depoliticization of everything. And, you know, like politicians kind of become more of, of, of a personality, I guess that that you're either um, that you're either like you know vibing with or not, and th- this is kind of an extreme form of that because I you know I know a lot of people that supported Trump that aren't necessarily conservative people, but you know the, you see this um you know people see Trump as like an asshole, and then a lot of people are assholes and just say you know he reminds me of me, you, you know what I mean? So in in that sense, I don't think that it's outside the realm of possibility that finally somebody sees a politician that they you know that that feels like they're part of their group and thinks this person is going to be my savior when everything looks so bleak across the well, yeah i mean look it's it's this not that it's the same thing right because obviously QAnon is so demented and, and just strange and something you couldn't have even imagined existed not that long yeah. ago. but uh but i think that the underlying pathology that like 
all you can imagine is like some savior you know doing it for you is even the same with like the early obama administration when there were um you know like it was super common for for liberal you know like left liberal types to say it's like oh you know obama wants all the things that we want he's just not saying it right now he's playing like nine dimensional chess he's got this master plan where you know he's he's going to save us from all this stuff in the end uh you know he just can't like reveal his cards yet yeah. And, and and part of that, obviously, with Obama was like, oh, well, you know, he's the first black president. Like, how radical can he really be? Like, at some point, you know, he's going to have enough support behind him. But, yeah, I mean, definitely. I think with, uh, you know, with left liberals, it was a little more muted because what they want is a little more is a little bit more muted. Like, they're pretty satisfied with the status quo. They just want, you know, things to be a little bit different. With Trump supporters, I think a lot of people are so desperate that, you know, they, they want a whole different they want a whole different society, but they, they, as you said, like they can't imagine, you know, one outside of capitalism. They can't imagine one outside of the status quo. So it kind of just becomes Trump as the savior, like a, a status quo savior, I guess. Yeah, no, exactly. That, you know, that, cause that, I mean, like as insane as it is, like that feels more realistic that, you know, there's going to be some like Messiah figure who's going to save you from within the system. Um, but uh, but yeah, so it's it's an interesting article. It's a really interesting, uh, it's a really interesting interview. Uh, just going to say one more time, if you want access to that, uh, as well as uh, as every other uh, Thursday episode, uh, then uh, you can uh, join. Go to the Patreon. That's Patreon.com/slash Ben Burgess. And um, so five bucks a month, you get all of that. Uh, you get. Um, uh, you get the uh, the Discord server and uh, and pretty regular uh, you know call them Discord office hours you know group voice chats. So I did one, actually I did one earlier today. Uh, you know with with patrons, which um, which was a lot of fun. You know because it's just like answering whatever you know. It's like just letting people you know talk about or ask questions about whatever they want yeah. to. Like we we kind of so you know we ranged all the way from like. Uh, you know, kind of the history of the labor movement and, and, and the ways that, you know, that working together in common struggle can help people get over prejudices all the way to like stuff about like Wittgenstein and logical positivism. Cause like, that's what people were asking about to like uh, Ayn Rand and objectivism and, you know, and all that stuff. So it was, um, you know, those were always a lot of fun and, uh, and there will be, you know, there will be, there are other good, you know, patron benefits that, you know, that we've been thinking about and talking about, you know, at a certain point, it's just a question of, uh, of getting, uh, you know, if like, we're going to do other things, you know, we have to pay people for them, you know, so it's, so it's a question just building up to the point where we can do that. Yeah. But it's, it's, you know, again, it's something I, I don't want to make it sound like a subscription service. It's, it's solidarity. You know, if, if you think that it's, if you think that this is good work and you want to support it, uh, then, um, you know, then this is, this is a way to do it. And, you know, and it, and it pays everybody's, you know, pays everybody's wages, you know, who, uh, who works on the show, uh, you know, which, um, I appreciate, I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, fair enough. Uh, so, um, anyway, if you can't do that, uh, of course, you know, uh, it also helps to, uh, to like and subscribe here on YouTube, uh, rate and review, uh, rain review on iTunes. I know, I know that listening to, uh, you know, people say that on podcasts is sort of, it's like, you know, you, it's almost like a, it's, it's like ritual words or something. You've heard it so many times, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, but these things really do, 
uh, these things really do help. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's been, you know, things, things have been, you know, things have been go, growing at a good clip. Uh, apparently we just found out before we started, a lot of people are uh, listed in uh, Cyprus somehow, uh, you know, uh, whatever sort of community of English speaking leftists, you know, there are there. Um, but, uh, logic but, is a universal language. You know? <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Everybody, everybody wants a good argument. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so just a uh, just a couple more things be uh, before we go, unless there are any last minute questions. Uh, so I do want to say, since this is yeah, I'm getting my dates right. This is the last regular episode for January, uh, and so we're we're getting into uh, the last few months before the uh, the new book comes out. Uh, so if people want to uh, to pre order that, uh, they can uh, do that from uh, Red Emma's is the uh, is the place that I always like to. Um, uh, to to recommend, I I heard you know I heard about them because because Michael always encouraged people to uh, to buy against the web from there. It's a worker-owned bookstore in Baltimore that you can order books from online. So uh, the the new book is canceling comedians while the world burns: critique of the contemporary left, coming out at the end of April, so about three months. Uh, and that's uh, and basically like a lot of what the book is about is the stuff that extremely perceptive comment that Rania made in the, uh, in the foreign policy panel about, um, you know, about learned helplessness, uh, that a lot of the pathologies, you know, of, of the left. And I mean, this is the kind of, you know, the book covers a lot of ground, but I mean, this is kind of the unifying theme, you know, a lot of the pathologies, of the left come from the fact that, you know, we've been so distant from real power for so long, uh, that uh, that we don't even think in those terms anymore. You know, we ju we, we just think in terms of of sort of testing people's uh, you know moral you know moral credentials. You know, sort of the sort of constant inventory of everybody's soul. You know, which is I think really the opposite of the the uh, the kind of class politics that we need. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, let me, let me just say uh, before we sign off uh, that. Uh, again, uh, episode 27 on Thursday uh, for uh, for patrons, and we'll we'll do a pre you know we'll do another preview here. Uh, is Amber Lee Frost and Daniel Bessner on uh, on their Jacobin article about QAnon? Uh, on uh, before that on Wednesday, uh, we are going to uh, to be um, we're uh, you know we're going to be. Uh, <laughs> uh, Continuing our series of Wednesday, you know, movie review live streams. Very, very full crew again. It's gonna be all the same people from last week. I'm really so, excited for that. I mean, I don't know. I think that out of everybody to talk about Doctor Strange Love with, uh, Bessner's probably the person yeah. that I'd be most excited to talk about that with. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So that was as our, uh, you know, producer and and uh, and and resident uh, film critic, uh, Forrest uh, had suggested that. Bringing uh, bringing Bessner on to talk about Doctor Strange Love, uh, so it's also going to be, um, uh, it's also going to uh, to be Jacobin deputy editor uh, Mikey Utrecht, uh, and uh, and also um, you know philosophy professor and cartoonist uh, Ryan Lake. Uh, so I I actually just saw Doctor Strange Love again uh, for uh, for the first time in a long time, actually before this even came up, but uh, but I will. 
also probably catch it again tomorrow night, you know, to, uh, to be fresh on it, you know, before we yeah. talk about it. I'm probably going to, I'm probably going to watch it. I watched it on Wednesday after uh, we talked about it and I'm probably going to watch it again to try to catch everything that I missed. Um, I used to have it on DVD as a kid. That was like one of the few, like, cause I remember I went to this huge DVD sale and I was looking for like all these Peter Sellers movies. Cause I was, I was a big fan of like the pink Panther when I was, uh, I was a kid and, and the mouse that roared and like, Oh yeah. 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 So, um, which is another movie maybe one day we can no that, that is actually that'll be a fun one to actually yeah. also be a fun one to watch with Fessner, but uh yeah. <laughs> but yeah no i man i haven't thought about the mouse that roared in a long time but yeah i remember that movie uh yeah Pink another Pan- movie where where uh where peter sellers plays like half the characters <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah pink panther you know I've watched it, but it's a pretty vague memory. I don't remember it that well. I remember Mouse the Roar pretty well. Yeah. Well, he made he made a bunch of them. I mean, you know, as uh, Inspector Clouseau, it was like a running series. Yeah. Like his character. They were all like, they were all just, I mean, pretty much Peter Sellers vehicles besides the first one. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, Doctor Strange Love this week. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll get back. Um, I expect probably we're going to be back to the Scorsese series the uh, you know next week, although not too sure about the details yet. Um, as far as the uh, the Sunday night uh, debate live stream, you know the debate breakdown live streams where we watch you know old uh, old debates on YouTube. Uh, the one uh, last week, well, yesterday as we're recording this, uh, was a lot of uh, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Uh, I had uh, Bhaskar Sankara on to uh, to watch uh, Christopher Hitchens' uh, 1986 uh, debate. Uh, it was Christopher Hitchens and John Judas first versus a couple of uh, Ayn Rand people. Uh, so that that was you know very much like what you what you think it would be, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, this yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask to come help with that one, but then I had that root canal and oh yeah yeah I was completely I'm still kind of like recovering from it. Like my lips are really chapped from like getting. I don't know. <laughs> I, I've got like a three-part root canal. It's crazy. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, this Sunday, going to have, uh, well, Ryan Lake, who people have seen a few times in a few different contexts at this point, and also Mark Warren, uh, who uh, the, the real heads will remember from that epic, like, you know, however long that was, like seven-hour live stream that we did on election night last year. Uh, he... Um, He's the one who uh, who he was talking about his, uh, you know, his wife just had kids and, you know, and, and da- he was on with David Feldman and Feldman was recommended that he stop loving his children. He'll, he'll you know, be much better off long term if, you know, if he doesn't love his kids. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, so in, in any case, uh, so Ryan and Mark will be on with me. I think we're probably going to do another Hitchens one, but we uh, but I haven't totally I uh, haven't totally settled that uh, yet, but that's going to be on Sunday. And uh, next Monday, uh, uh, the Great Crystal Ball is going to be back. Uh, probably do kind of a domestic policy version of uh, of what we did today with with Rania and, and Danny and Katie. Uh, so, uh, really looking forward to that. Hope people uh, check that out. Uh, as always, really appreciate everybody who came and you know and and watched and you know participated in the discussion, set of super chats. Uh, all, uh, all really good stuff. Uh, you know, really, uh, you know, really appreciate it. I'll, uh, see, uh, see everybody. Well, you know, people who are watching on the uh, YouTube channel, see everybody in a couple days left is best. <laughs>